Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Well, I'm starting this uh, this podcast entirely on my own. Ah, Mark's actually just wandered in. He's been uh, he's been elsewhere. So I'll just pause and uh, hello. Right. I, I I'd sort of given up waiting really because you weren't here. I told you I was. I, I, have you started doing the podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. This is the comedy moment when Mark comes in late. Yeah. Oh, uh, how was it with Jeremy? Oh, he was great. He was great. Was he? It was yes. lovely to be in a studio with like him because he's host. smart yeah. and intelligent. And it's just like, you know, it's just... <laughs> and, he, and he's the only other broadcaster in the world who wears a suit all the time. He do, yeah, he does. You? And he uh, he said to say hello to you. That's very so nice. I said hello. So you would give it your... This is... Uh, Jeremy has this, this sort of like philosophy strand. Yes. Uh, what makes us human. Yeah. And in case, I'm sure that I managed to sufficiently lower the tone. Yeah, and in, and in, can you sort of sub it down to a couple of sentences? What, in essence, is it that makes us human? Scary with? films. No, I was talking about um, about there being something very human about liking scary scary stories. That was what it was basically. I was just justifying my existence by saying that thing that I like doing. That that <laughs> <laughs> that so that appears to be how that spot works. It was back to your PhD, basically. Then was it? Uh, well, yeah, and then, well, well, as you know, nothing's changed in in all these years. It's a bit. It, it was yes. It was just me talking about scary. The thing that came up, which comes up here again, is that if you're a horror fan, people do do that thing of saying to you, "Well, why do you like scary films?" As if like liking them is completely weird and nuts. But it isn't. It's just like you know, you either you either do or you don't. Nobody ever says, "Why do you like Wagner?" Explain to me why you like. Robert Mike's. Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner, that's he was, right. He was a good In actor. Heart to Heart. Yeah. <laughs> he was great, good, wasn't he? Cold it. He was very good in that. <laughs> very good, particularly in that. Well, I thought I was going to have to, uh, to do it without these me. emails and then sort of laugh and, you know, humorously. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do the laughing bits. Okay, go on. Uh, well, it's good to have you here, by the way. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. It's What's up? Lovely to have you. What's up? I'm, I'm apparently up. I always thought the mean that what makes us human was is the ability to act independently and organise together if needed. Okay, well, what you just said in one sentence basically puts what I just waffled on about for half an hour. Yes, but yours was more entertaining. Mine probably have more jokes in it. Scary movies is far more exciting. Um, I think we're going to start abroad. I don't know if you you know you know the iWitter app, which has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us at all. Can I just be clear? Are we in any way involved in it? Hang on a sec. Uh, no. We're no, not. We're not. I just checked. Uh, okay, fine. Nothing just, to do. Good. All right. Anyway, so we've got listeners everywhere. Just wanted to be clear about that. Yeah. Apart from Antarctica and North Korea. Mm-hmm. Anyway. This, we have got an... This week there was one listener... In North Korea. In North Korea. Very bravely on their own, having a phone <laughs> thing playing up. Saying, well, unless, as someone did say uh, on Twitter, said... Unless it's a US spy plane. No, no, he said maybe it's the dear listener. <laughs> maybe it's him. Maybe it's Kim Jong-un. And he has the one who's downloaded our podcast, in which case, hello to you. We ought to say hello to Jason, hello to Stephen Fry. I'm Norton. not saying hello to Kim Jong-un. Is that taking I'm just not doing that. The dear listener? No. Okay. Dear, dear listener. There was a, there was a fantastic piece uh, by, there's a journalist called Mark Burroughs, who I like very much. And he wrote a piece recently about being an online moderator. He, he, 
He worked for ages moderating comments, you know, below the line comments in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody writes an article in a newspaper, then you get below the line comments. Okay? And it doesn't matter how erudite and informed the article is, the comments, what comes underneath is always rubbish. Yes. Well, well, his argument was that that's not the case. Actually, there are there is interesting stuff, but the problem is you have to distinguish the interesting stuff from the trolling and the you know and the stuff written you know without opposing the lunacy. Thumbs, the lunacy. But he said that the most brilliant thing is that there, there, because there's there's organised campaigns of trolling, and apparently uh, North Korea is quite big on this because it's very easy to spot because they do use the phrase the "great and supreme leader," and that's it. <laughs> always a giveaway. Always a giveaway. Anyway, this is an email from Ed. I'm not sure if I can be more specific, but it all will become clear. I am writing Wittertainment after Mark's recent call for North Korean listeners. I can reliably inform you that you have had at least one. I, now, I don't know whether Ed is the, the aforementioned iWitter, nothing to do with us, downloader. Okay. But anyway. What, you mean the one in North Korea? Mm-hmm. I spent the last week in North Korea having participated in their marathon the weekend before. Didn't even know they had one. Who knew? You're, uh, and I bet the dear listener has to win. Everybody let him through. He's like the bully at the party. Didn't he didn't, didn't he get through. 19 holes in one when he tried out the golf course? The guy with the weird haircut. Let him win. <laughs> Anyway, you and your co-conspirators, Wittery, was exceptionally welcome, but of light relief after a long day being pounded with propaganda. I can also report on North Korea's truly bizarre cinema scene. So this is great. Here's an eyewitness yeah, report brilliant. of cinema. From, do you know what goes Eyewitness, on? not eyewitter. Very good. Very good. It, already you've justified your salary. Thank you. Films, much like everything else in the country, are an acquired taste. Used as a propaganda tool, the plot lines seem to follow a common theme. North Koreans facing a great threat from the West before successfully quashing all their enemies. The special effects are particularly brilliant. They look like something strung together by a child on iMovie. Kim Jong-il, North Korea's last leader, was a great fan of Wrong cinema. Read. Himself playing a hand in several movies. He must be one of the world's only leaders with an IMDb page. There must be a feature in there somewhere, says it. Well, that's that's very interesting, actually, mm-hmm. because I was just... And I haven't checked this out. Maybe I should. I wonder if Her Royal Highness, 90 this week, happy birthday, mum, because, because of her appearance with James Bond yes. in that Olympics film, with, yeah. so directed by Danny Boyle, co-starring alongside James Bond, has got to give Her Majesty an IMDb page, hasn't it? Shall I look her up? I think that would be absolutely. What, what would it be? What would it? What? Hang on. What would I? What would I be looking up? IMDb, and then yeah, look I'm looking up, up IMDb. But... Her Majesty, the Sereneness. No, no, seriously, the, the dear leader. The, the, okay, actually, let's just check. the dear leader. Probably, almost certainly, a film called that. No, yeah, there's a film called Dear Leader, Cheerleader Camp to the Death, Fear Leader. Save the fear leader, save, save the world. Save the fear. Okay, fine. Hang about. So let's do um, let's do Danny Boyle. Okay, if I do it, then then I look at him, and then we can tighten this up later. No, we can't. We Simon don't. and Robin. Yeah, behind the glass. Right, Danny Boyle, and then if I look up under, because he directed that short, didn't he? Tra- London Olympics opening ceremony, Isles of what? Wo- Isles of Wonder. Was that when it comes into Isles of Wonder? And let's see in the full cast list whether it includes. Royal Highness. I'm just looking. I'm just looking. Hang on a minute. But what will I... Okay, fine. So, yeah. Just oh, trying to jolly the scene me, there's a lot here. of people in this. Um, should I look... Should, is it Windsor? Windsor. Well, that would be her nominal surname. Elizabeth. No, she, you know what? She's not... I don't think she... I don't think she's listed in... Oh, she is! Queen Elizabeth II. And then if I click on that... There you go. There is indeed a... So here is how the IMDb describes her. 
Princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary was born on the 21st of London, and she has been in... Okay, writer, one credit. The Queen's Christmas Message. She's the writer of that. Yeah. Thanks. She's thanked in a lot of things. Miscellaneous crew. Oh, that can't be right. What, she's crewed on a movie? Suffragettes Forever, the story of women women in power. Goodness. Was she in Suffragette? Jack and Nori, TV series, she pictures reproduced by gracious permission. That's what it is. Oh, okay. okay. Anyway, anyway, a long time ago, Ed was telling us about Kim Jong-il, who yes. does have his IMDb page because he was in all the movies. I think, imagine if you're a dictator and you run the country, you can be in whatever movie you fancy. I put in Kim Jong-il and it came up with, do you mean Lil' Kim? Very good. Anyway, <laughs> that's like, what it said. there also says, continues Ed, some crackers co-produced by the North Korean Travel Board and... Koryo Tours, a Western operator there. One film of note is a BBC-supported documentary on the North Korean World Cup team of 1966. I briefly pondered trying to convert our tour guide to your church, but the lack of internet somewhat thwarted that being a long-lived campaign. Greetings from China, which is where he is at the moment. That's Ed Hardy. So thanks, Ed. Maybe it was him who was the eyewitter listener in Pyongyang, but maybe it was someone else. Yeah. Can I just say that that's the strangest bit of radio that I've ever just leapt into? So leaping yeah. out of the order of Jeremy Vine Studio into the, the chaos. chaos of the last 10 minutes. Yeah. But it's a creative chaos. It is a creative chaos. This, is, this goes back, I'm sure I've told you before, the Victorians, some Victorians, probably the wealthy Victorians, had a room called a sluttery. Did you know that? No. Yes. A sluttery was Meaning? A, 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 a chaotic room, a room where everything was disorganised, out of which came wonder and uh, creativity. Okay. So there's so organized. So it's like it's chaos. It looks extraordinary. What a mess! But actually, look at this work of art that comes out of it, and that's a sluttery. So that is what this studio is at the moment. The Wittertainment sluttery. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think we should definitely start using it. Time for one more, then, from Stephen. It's Cannon always time for one more in Yokohama. Simon and Mark, I'm a U.S. citizen and a 22-year resident of Japan. I have been listening to your fine show off and on since Roger Ebert's health failed about five years ago. I would like to address a chronic problem that I have not yet heard raised. Okay. Oh, you want me to carry on? Okay. No, sorry. This is interesting. Yes, any, no, I know. No, no, why did you stop? I was listening to you. Any movie that Mark reviews that is yeah. not a teenage-orientated blockbuster invariably takes at least five or six months to come to Japan, right. if ever. Consequently, by the time that movie arrives, I've usually forgotten the title of the movie, let alone what Mark thought of it. Yeah. To aggra- aggravate... The and, the, and the strangest thing is that at my time of life, so have I. Modestly budgeted pictures are as often as not relegated to direct to video, which is only the only alternative at this time since Japan has not actively adopted streaming technology and movies are still generally only either seen at the theatre or rented. You would think Japan would be at the forefront of streaming, wouldn't you? But apparently it's not. Fortunately, I live along a train line in Tokyo that stops at Shibuya Station, where the largest DVD rental store in Japan is located. It's called, uh, I think it's Tsutaya. Sataya. Which means everything, anywhere. The, uh, apparently you can look for it in Lost in Translation. Apparently it turns, okay. turns up there. Uh, and it did carry Tyrannosaur, which I saw on Mark's recommendation, a rare success. That said, it goes without saying that most residents of Japan do not have easy access to this outlet. In consideration of the doubtlessly large number of native English speakers around the world who are nearly shut out from the films that you casually enjoy in the cultural mecca that is Brockenhurst, <laughs> I would propose that a new listener demographic be dubbed the Movie Morlocks. Okay. Okay, you remember the Morlocks? No. They were in Remind me. They were the strange underground dwellers in the time machine. They had like pale, flabby faces. Oh, okay, fine, 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 fine. They've fine. been underground okay. for decades. Yeah, yeah. In the future. Yes. And, and they were very sensitive to the light. Yes. So 
they were like the undercover. Yeah, no, I get that. Why? Why are they the movie? Because they're not in the cinema. In the because well, the, they don't. They just the, don't see anything. You know, like oh, I see. Fine. These are the underprivileged. Sorry, yeah, fine. It's just the way you described them made them sound like they were in the cinema. No, no. Anyway, anyway, Stephen concludes. It's all right. I'll stop shortly. <laughs> If you're not yet convinced that this is a genuine phenomenon, I would submit that I plan to see The Revenant when it opens here on the 22nd of April. Okay, so it's that is today. Okay, so The Revenant has just opened in Japan. Wow. You would think that's really strange, wouldn't yeah. you? And I ask that you reflect on what a distant memory your first viewing of this movie is for you. Can so I just say how... We've been talking about The Revenant, and if you live in Tokyo, you haven't had a chance to see yeah. it until how, now. However... However, in defence of in Japan, defense firstly, Japan. Um, Japan is the place from which you would always get all the soundtrack albums that you couldn't get anywhere else. I mean, I got cruising on a Japanese uh, import. Uh, Japan is also the place that you got the proper version of Fatal Attraction. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, it is the only place in the world in which the Madam Butterfly ending of Fatal Attraction was theatrically played. If anybody else saw the the proper Fatal Attraction with the proper ending, not the stupid ending with the bath, anywhere other than Japan, mm -hmm. let me know. Because to the best of my knowledge, Japan was the only territory in which they played that film as it was meant to have been seen. So what you're saying to Stephen Cannon in Yokohama, MA Japanese Linguistics, University of Hawaii, Japanese proficiency test, proficiency test level one, kickboxing record 320, what you're saying is stop your whinging and complaining. You're yeah. living in Japan. You've got the proper fatal attraction. You can get all these soundtrack yeah, albums. back off. Yes. <sighs> Time for the show. I did a thing for um, for Friday night's music night on uh, Radio which, which is the station that you're on every day. In, when you finished here, you yes. go there and you do all request Friday, and uh, they have a thing called the 360 degree camera. Have you seen this? Yes. Uh, well, I've watched the I've watched the final result. It's a virtual reality. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing, and and so it's like it, it is like a kind of like a sort of football on the end of a pole, but it takes the photograph all the way round, and then you can go. So if you if you're doing the listening to Friday night's music night, you can literally go there and then. You can, you know, turn your head around. Have you done the thing when you put the you put the the image into a the virtual reality goggles? I yeah. Worn, and then for a moment it was strange because I had your view from the podium, and then you look around, you can see the orchestra. You look up, you see the sea. You look down, you don't see your legs, which is also weird. Weird. But here's what I want: that in here. You want us in virtual reality? Degree, yeah. I want the listeners to be able to be as if they were standing between us. like So we have like a football with the 360-degree thing. So then they can go, oh, I wonder what Simon's wearing. So they, they swivel around. They swivel they, around and they can look. And then they can it. swivel around. They can look at you not listening while I'm reviewing a film. They can swivel around. And they can see me as I turn to behind the glass and gesture toward Robin, in pr prompting inevitably you to go, who's Robin? Like as if yeah. everyone doesn't know. And then maybe now. they could reach out and touch us. They could reach out. And, and, and <laughs> hand over a cup of tea. Yes. You know, somebody reached out to me the other day and I reached back to them and punched them in the face by mistake. <laughs> Apparently we are, we're going to try and do our own version on Snapchat. So we, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's, the, the bargain basement version. Exactly. What do you expect? <laughs> but you're right. The, they, they have put you have like a mobile phone on the end of a lolly stick. I think they have put your virtual reality thing up um, online so people can... I mean, it's obviously not yeah. quite the whole VR experience. It was pretty VR. But anyway, we've already been told off. Why? We're talking not. We're talking about Radio Two all the time. Stop it! Not all the time. I just mentioned it now. We've only been on three minutes. Hands across the ocean, for heaven's sake! Oh, yes, we're all true. part of one big family. Anyway, Paul Crow's in Bunbury, Simon and Mark, which is in Western Australia. I felt I had to reach out to regard a certain personal <laughs> dilemma. Yeah. All right. Spelt two M's, I'm afraid. Very good. 
As the mouthpiece for the populace regarding the cinema laws, yes. I would be grateful for your adjudication on this matter. I, and this, is a, this, is a, this is an area of the code that we haven't considered before. OK. I have to say I went to see, the, took the family to see The Jungle Book uh, this week. Big thumbs up? Yeah, big thumbs big up. Big thumbs up. And there's that thing, do you pay for the nice seats? So we did pay, we pay for the nice seats. And then sitting right next to us, two people who considered it perfectly okay in the darkness to scoff an entire Mexican meal, complete with dips in glass jars. and, and dips glass in glass? Yes, yes. You didn't, you didn't... Did you bring this up? Did you say to them, excuse me, this is not a restaurant? What do you think? I think you didn't. I, I think... suffered in silence and then harumphed on the way out. <laughs> you... I glared menacingly. In the dark. Mm. Were, you, were you watching it in 3D or 2D? It was 3D. Fine. So they wouldn't have noticed you glaring anyway because you had on the... But you never know, Dan the Woods, you don't know if the person who's making that noise is a drug dealer. Because they could have been. Which neck of the woods is that, Simon? It's like, you, which you, where do you live? They could easily be. <laughs> You've got this brilliant version of your life in which you are literally living on the interrupt. mean streets. You can't interrupt someone who's making a big fuss at our local, just in case. Just in case they're in the middle of a deal. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Paul Crow in Bunbury. His is a far more straightforward dilemma. As the mouthpiece done that? I am a hospital doctor, working in a position that involves being contactable by telephone for the majority of my time. Okay. It is rare that I am neither on call or have hospital inpatients. This, in combination with the needs of a young family, is at the root of my problem. In my decadent youth, I would never have dreamt of doing anything so uncouth as to use my phone in the cinema and wholeheartedly support the stance on frivolous cinema phone use. Yeah. However, somewhat hypocritically, I must confess to sitting next to an aisle with phone on silent and nipping out if I am called. Is this acceptable behaviour? And if so, could a special dispensation be issued for people in similar positions to myself? Or is a case of my accepting personal responsibility for my own life decisions and the limited phone legal movie access associated with them, the needs of many outweighing the needs of the few? So if he's being summoned as a hospital doctor by his phone, is it OK to leave the phone on? No. No, don't go. No, don't. So if you might be called... Don't, don't go. Don't go to the cinema. Even if he's in the aisle and his phone is under a coat. It's Honestly, it's driving me nuts. It's, a thick it's, woolen cape, it's, maybe. It's even getting to the point that in preview screenings, people have been known to get out phones and people have been known to, you know, to receive calls and then go just nip outside. In fact, the other day I was in a preview screening in which somebody nipped outside and then held the door open so that they could take the message and carry on watching the film at the same time. Like, that was so much better, having the light coming in so from the corridor. Better. So much better, and I'm not even joking. Yeah, no. It's really simple. It goes like this. Turn your phone off or don't go to the pictures. I'm sorry, you know, if you start doing the, well, I've got special reason. Everyone's got special reason. Everyone's got special reason for, for having their phone. Oh, I have to know because. What if, you're, what if you actually are a drug dealer? <laughs> you know, really. You get an emergency call. Oh, I don't know. Um, top ten in just a second. Meryl Streep after two thirty. Well, I am Meryl Streep, the real Meryl Streep. Hi, did, did you I'm remind Meryl her? Streep. Well, I uh, no. I didn't really. Had she forgotten you? I think it was for Doubt. Okay. So in uh, yeah. it was the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie um, Doubt two thousand eight something like that, and we would do we were live uh, on the show much like now and. This was a live junket and Meryl Streep was talking to other broadcast yes. outlets. Who were overstaying their welcome. Exactly. Frankly. And so she was late. We, we, uh, we were just filling time. Imagine yeah, that. Exactly. Talking nonsense. And so the deal was 
that whenever she became available, we would just hear a voice that said, Hello, I'm Meryl Streep. And that's exactly what happened. We were wittering her out something or other, and then suddenly her voice, her majestic voice, came on the airwaves. That's, what's impressive about what you just did was you just did backstory to a running joke. So it's like... It's like Wittertainment Origins. You just did, you like explained where a running joke came from. You know. If I explain where every running joke came from. I know, we're never going to get anywhere. Exactly. In fact, I'm now casting aside an email with an in-joke because I want to get on to some box office top ten. Okie dokie. Okay, because there's lots and lots of Jungle Book correspondence. Yes. uh, And just lots of stuff to consider. Okay. Here's the top ten. Kung Fu Panda, number three, is at number ten. I think we've said everything there is to say. Criminal is at number nine. Blimey, Charlie. It's absolutely terrible. Um, there is a Somebody sent me a screen grab of one of the BBC homepages which had linked to our review of Criminal, and it was a picture of Kevin Costner, and the caption was, you know, Kevin Costner goes on the rampage in Criminal. And then underneath it, it said, Warning, Mark Kermode shouts his review. Mm. I don't remember it being particularly shouted. No, it was just when I was doing Gary Oldman. Because oh, Gary Oldman does the whole movie as a shouty show. So the, basically the story is that uh, 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 Ryan Reynolds gets his brain tr- transplanted into Kevin Costner. Whereas if you remember, Ryan Reynolds had Ben Kingsley's brain transplanted into him a couple of movies back. So it's basically that movie. It's utter rubbish, utter rubbish. And it does consist of Kevin Costner running around Merry London with people saying, go blimey, strike a light, mate. That's bang out of order. And no mistake in Jim. Dominic Skelton says, on Saturday I went to watch The Jungle Book only to discover that the next screening had entirely sold out. Given that, I decided to settle for whatever was on next, which turned out to be criminal. criminal. It was fun and I enjoyed it. Yes, the basic memory transplant premise is preposterous and not helped by the use of contemporary setting rather than a sci-fi one, but I found I was willing to suspend disbelief and run with it. The critics are certainly right, there's a lot wrong with it. Dick Van Dyke-level Cockney, implausible plot points, most of all the staggeringly stupid Gary Oldman character, which was my biggest problem with the yeah, film. Yeah, who shouts everything. But there was lots to like too. It was often funny, sometimes even intentionally so. Kept up a, kept up a good pace and featured several good performances, especially from Godot and Reynolds, but also surprisingly from Kevin Costner. I know he's been panned elsewhere for this one, but I thoroughly enjoyed his slightly hammy efforts, which oddly he gives and he takes away, does Dominic. Which oddly put me in mind of 90s Schwarzenegger in tone, albeit with more swearing. In short, yes, it's rubbish, but unlike The Good Doctor, I found it enjoyable rubbish. Well, I'm glad you did, because, you know, you wanted to go and see Jungle Book, and I'm glad you had a nice time. Why didn't you correct me, incidentally, when I was saying Gal Gadot, and you know it's Gal Gadot? You just said Gal Gadot correctly. It's Gal Gadot, yes. It is, but when I was talking about it, I said Gal Gadot and you didn't correct me. Well, I'd probably felt I shouldn't interrupt you. What, just to tell me that that's not how it's pronounced? Because you've actually met her. Yes, but I thought maybe it might have sounded patronising. And that would be different <laughs> how? Maybe I'd corrected you on a number of other items. OK. Presumably. I now know that it's Gal Gadot. Thank you very it much. It is Gal Gadot. Yeah, because do you, know who, do you know who told me that it's Gal Gadot? The whole of the internet. Really? Yeah. There's, there's actually a little uh, meme which you can look at, which tells you how to pronounce Gal Gadot, which I checked before I went in and had my check. Yeah, but then you were on air with me and you could have just said, on air, it's Gadot. I can only apologise Thank you. Moving on. I will do next time. Uh, Terry's at... Don't know, haven't seen it. OK. Uh, fans at number seven. Do know, have seen it. Liked it very much. So this is the uh, Shirek Khan movie in which he plays both a, uh, a, a legendary star and also the star's number one fan. So he's played, he plays both of them with some fantastic uh, special effects makeup work done by Greg Cannon, who worked on um, uh, Benjamin Button, but actually loads of other horror movies as well. 
And it's a story which is kind of a little bit like The King of Comedy and a little bit like Misery, and it has terrific action sequences. And I thought that the I thought Shah Rukh Khan's performance was really well modulated because you do believe that you're watching two completely different characters, and that's not just down to the uh, special effects makeup. Um, I thought it was gripping and funny and intelligent, and had some wry things to say about the nature of celebrity, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Jimmy Dixon from our YouTube channel saw it yesterday. It's very good. I do struggle with the length of Bollywood movies. Having an interval in the cinema is quite a novelty, though uh, Shah Rukh Khan is great. I felt they needed less music to dramatise the scenes. It would have been better to just allow his performance to take centre. The music is pretty constant and turn up to 11, but I kind of rather like that. And also I thought it was interesting that despite the, the very, very overcranked score, actually the uh, Shah Rukh Khan's performances were... Was so rather subtle in their modulation. Uh, the Huntsman Winter's Wars at number six. I haven't caught up with it. Uh, Eddie the Eagles at number five. I haven't caught up oh, with it. Oh, come on. What else have you been doing? Uh, uh, watching all the films that are coming out this week, Simon. Okay. Uh, number four, BVS Dodge. Yes. Well, I th- here's the thing I think it's necessary to say about Batman versus Superman. Dawn of Justice. Uh, Dawn of Justice. Is that, you know, when, when we reviewed it uh, here on the programme, uh, my problems with it, and I... I stand by these problems. Is I think it is incoherent. I think it is structurally all over the shop. I think that it's a film which mistakes murkiness for darkness. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's just deeply disappointing. Most of the people I know who like it go, it's not great. It's just better than they thought. There were good things about it. So essentially, the whole idea that what's happened with Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice is that it has proven that there is this huge rift between critics and audiences is fundamentally not true. Most of the things that most of the critics didn't like about it are kind of shared by the majority of the other proposals. There are there are hardcore fans who absolutely love it and there are some critics who absolutely hated it. But most people are sort of in a kind of vaguely centrist position which they think it's okay although flawed or they think it's not very good but there are things about it that are interesting and I think it's a shame that it has become this it has become what is now held up as an example of saying well critics and audiences are completely out of touch actually they're not they're surprisingly on the same page it's taken 35 million quid so that's yeah, but the, the, as we've said before, just because somebody pays to see a film doesn't mean they love it. It just means they paid to see it. Loads and loads of people paid to see Waterworld, but very few people would tell you that Waterworld is brilliant. No, it's not rubbish, though. No, I... Well, well, Waterworld is, is more... It, Waterworld is a more flawed film than Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, although there are, in, there are things in Waterworld. I mean, it is, I mean, it is basically a film in which Kevin Costner is a fish, which is sort of... <laughs> I quite respect him for but he's less fishy than he was going to be in the original versions of the script of Waterworld Kevin Costner actually had gills that wouldn't have been and then he's got but there's a, and there's a weird thing now about whether in the in the finished version of the film has he got residual gills or is he anyway whatever the point is just because people pay to see a movie doesn't mean they liked it it just means they wanted to see it and people you know so saying oh well a f- movie took this much money therefore it's this good is nonsense it just means it, there was this much interest in it. So Eye in the Sky is at number three, and 
let me do some correspondence and then you can uh, then you can. I just say before you do, it's going to yes. be very hard to top the letter that we had last week about Eye in the Sky, which I think was one of the most uh, eloquently written and and moving responses we've had to a film in many a year. Yes, this is from a gentleman who lives in uh, Cape Town who lost someone uh, who he knew in the uh, shootings. Yeah, uh, in uh, in Kenya, and so therefore was giving his sort of perspective on. The movie and on pacifism and instantly it became a conversation about morality and war, which is the headline on this email, okay. which uh, I think is anonymous. Uh, Simon and Mark, I just listened to Mark's review of Eye in the Sky and the first email response that you read out, which Mark's just referring to. As a serving officer in the army who has spent an extended period in Afghanistan, I can tell you that the issues explored in the movie are very much in the mind of those who are asked to make the decisions like that every day. I still think of decisions I made while serving abroad, which almost certainly led to the death of people who were seeking to kill the men and women I was responsible for. I wouldn't change those decisions, but that does not mean that they will not stay with me forever. The morality of killing and the morality of war are fortunately things that most people will never have to battle with. If this film delivers a window into these difficult and contentious issues and encourages conversation and discussion, then I applaud it. Thank you from an avid listener. Well, uh, uh, thank you very much. What a what a beautifully written email. And I think it, it, it really is fascinating that certainly in the responses that we've had, Eye in the Sky has proved thought-provoking. And considering that it's had some fairly sniffy reviews, I think that's, that is interesting. We've had correspondence from people who, you know, who, are, who have a close relationship with the subject matter, and they have thought that it does talk about that subject matter in an interesting way. And it is, you know, is it gone in at number three? It's a film which is talking about those issues in a, what's basically a multiplex-friendly movie. I mean, some people were saying the film was, you know, was just not going to find an audience, but it has done. It's a, that's a, you know, that's that, that, that's a that's a good box office position. And uh, I think the responses from people talking about how it has raised those issues and how much it has struck a chord are very telling. As I said, I like the film. I'm, I'm a fan of it. Dr. David Vesey says, I've uh, just returned from a showing of Eye in the Sky and was pleasantly surprised by the film's success in stimulating consideration of the legality, morality and psychological toll of modern warfare. The film manages to avoid a polemical take on drone strikes and conveys the essential humanity of even the more hawkish characters. Yeah. Moreover, it works on a more basic level by sustaining the suspense throughout the finale and keeping the audience gripped. Slight plot contrivances are forgotten in the process. It's a very sombre feeling sitting and watching Alan Rickman in his last film. He pitches his performance just right. He'll be sorely missed. My only slight negative was Helen Mirren's performance, which was a bit OTT for my taste. OK. Um, David, thank you. Richard Cook on this. Iron the Skies alongside Spotlight as one of my films of the year so far. Gripping from start to finish. The cast was superb. The way they cut from the drone pilot to Helen Mirren and the excellent Alan Rickman was spectacular. The director did a brilliant job with many questions still whizzing around in my head after the film had finished. The ending did not let the film down. Uh, yeah, I shall leave uh, the rest of that. And, and this uh, email is headlined, Liberal Hand-Ringing at its Worst, as okay. watched by a Liberal Hand-Ringer. Okay. Which, and it's uh, Dan Poland who says, Far from being a slickly written intelligent thriller about the moral quagmire of drone strikes, yeah. this was a ham-fisted and clumsily written melodrama that wouldn't have made it out of the writer's room on the West Wing. We need films that explore these issues, but not like this, chasing a mainstream audience by being tarted up and neutered so as to appeal to those looking for a thrilling night at the flicks. Well, I'm glad that you read that out because it, I was just starting to wonder whether we had had any negative responses at all. And you know, thank you for sending that in, and I'm sorry that, that that's how you felt about it. I have to say the 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 vast majority of correspondence, at least as far as I can tell, has been far more mm -hmm. positive than that. Most 
most listeners seem to have found yeah, so stuff well, about it that was engaging. And one more here, uh, Nicola Millard. Uh, from our uh, YouTube channel. I think the BBFC need to modify their film classification comments for Eye in the Sky. It needs to warn viewers that there are scenes that may cause a shredding of nerves, interruption of normal respiration and pulling of hair. The weird thing is that this tension is almost entirely created by an extraordinary cast of actors who are actually, literally, phoning in their performances. Yes, exactly. This is more a war of words than a war film, as it comments on the moral, legal and political issues surrounding modern drone warfare. The final BBFC comment might also warn that this is a film that might cause extreme amounts of debate in the public later and a worthy memorial for the late great Alan Rickman. It's it's an interesting thing when you're classifying films dealing with uh, intensity, you know the BBA, the MPAA in America for example have in the past asked for films to be cut to make them less intense. That was sort of actually what happened in order to get um Women in Black, a 12A certificate as opposed to a 15 certificate, although frankly I still think it was, you know, as we know from much correspondence, people thought it was scarier than a 12A film. Uh, should be. But I, the, one of the most remarkable things about Eye in the Sky is for a film which does consist of people arguing with each other on the phone whilst watching video screens, it's very cinematic. Uh, apparently Kevin Costner's gills are behind his ears. Oh, behind his ears. Okay, fine. Sorry, don't have that. He does have ears. So he is. He does have gills, so he is still a fish. Zootropolis is at number two. Yeah, which I liked very much. I love the message of it, which is, you know, kind of, hey, we're all a bit, aren't we? Why can't we all just get on? But what I liked most about it was that it was really funny. And I thought the animated world was beautifully rendered. I liked the characters. I liked the way in which the story was very specifically about, you know, acceptance and, uh, you know, overcoming prejudice and overcoming innate fear, but it did it in a way which just made it feel like that was the way the story was going and this is the way the narrative wanted to go. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a real treat. Uh, and uh, new entry at number one, the number one movie in the UK, no surprise, it's The Jungle Book. No one was more surprised than me, and you were in the same screening as I was, at just how much fun The Jungle Book was. I did go in full of trepidation and worry, thinking, you know... <laughs> What are they going to do? Is it, you know, is this based on the cartoon? Is this based on the literary source? It turns out actually to be based uh, on both. Uh, and we've discussed this already, but actually, despite the fact that it's described as a live action movie, it is to all intents and purposes an animated movie that happens to have a single live action character in it. And I thought it was wonderfully done. I know you have slight reservations about the songs. Well, my, uh, be, my, uh, just that you said it didn't need them. So I've seen it twice. I was distracted by the drug dealers, but... What, in the film? I don't remember that. No, there where, where did that happen? Was uh, that the vultures? The vultures, definitely. <laughs> Main difference is the vultures in this movie don't speak, and they're not the Beatles. They're not the Beatles. <laughs> Which is... I just say, the vultures in the Jungle Book cartoon aren't the Beatles either, because those are the worst Liverpudlian accents. True. That's true. Uh, and so much correspondence on the Jungle Book. We'll do some now, and then we'll come, we'll come, back, come back to it later. later. Uh, Ellie, yeah. from the first Bovey Tracy Cubs. Hello, my name is Ellie. I am a Cub Scout with the first Bobby Tracy Cub Pack in Devon. My pack attended one of the special Cubs 100 screenings that were taking place all over the UK last Saturday. Baloo, my Cub Pack leader, thought it would be uh, good for the pack to do a review. He said getting a cinema full of Cub Scouts was like herding cats. I'm not sure what he means by this, as he doesn't have any cats, (laughs) says Ellie. I think he means it's quite difficult to make you do what he wants you to do. Or she... Ellie says, we loved the film and forgot at times all the characters, apart from Mowgli, were CGI. We thought Baloo and King Louie were the best characters and the little cute animals as well. Some of the little cubs thought it was scary at times. It is. And someone from Yellow Six had to go and sit with the leaders. One of the twins in Green Six, or Thing One, as Baloo calls him, (laughs) did get concerned, but was about the, the... I can't believe this bit has been taken out. Did get concerned when Baloo the bear... 
but it turned out all right in the end. I think it's been redacted. I think it would have been okay. But anyway, I'll just do okay, okay, what it is. Which bit could possibly be? Everyone knows the jungle book. They get concerned when Baloo the bear had... They get, I'm going to just... I'm going to You're going to just do it. I'm just going to say just do it. Anyway. They're going to take us off air. Go on. Did get concerned that Baloo the bear had met his end, but was, was pleased that it turned out okay. Okay, I don't think that's a plot spoiler. I don't think so either. We had a great day out, and it has given our Baloo something else to talk about rather than what a good time he had at the World Scout Jamboree in Japan last summer. Anyway, so that's very good. I didn't know that the whole bunch of uh, Cubs went to see no, it in neither. selected screenings. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Were you, were you a member of a... I was a Scout. Yes, I was a Cub and a Scout, I think. So Cub is the younger one. Yes. And then at what point do you become a Scout? Can't remember. And we and, and about twelve or thirteen something like because that. They, because I wasn't either. RK Law dip 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 dob dob dob. That's. I don't think that there's no dipping and dobbing. That that was out even when I was there. Oh, okay. So there there certainly is Arkela and Baloo and various other characters. Okay, I, I was a whole part of my childhood that I completely missed because I was in the pictures. And we and you swear allegiance to God. Well, in this is a way back, and I don't think you swear allegiance to God and the Queen and to keep the Scout Law anymore. And what is the Scout Law? Do our best. It's about the law of the jungle. I don't know. Is it the thing about it's the wolf that was with the thing. A cub scout always does his best, thinks of others before himself, helps old ladies, and does a good turn every day. You know what's funny is that the whole of the nation heard Robin reading that to you in your headphones because your headphones were spilling out across the microphone. That's so true. basically, you forgot. Oh, Robin wasn't reading it. Robin was doing it by heart. He just knew it. <laughs> a bit, a bit like you'll come out, you'll come out of the Jungle Book and you'll recite the Jungle Law, which yeah. is, I think, that's pure Rudyard Kipling actually, which they put into the movie. Which yes, is so that's right, exactly. They have. Yeah. Just one more uh, on this before the news. Peter Taylor Whiffen. You might recall last week I wrote in asking if my youngsters, age eleven and seven, would be okay to watch Jungle Book uh, and its CGI tiger after they were terrified by the last such big cat they encountered in Life of Pi. After hearing your advice, thank you, we decided to go with it and this was absolutely the right choice. Oh, great. Jungle Book was, and this may seem a strange word, gorgeous. The jungle and all its beasts were wonderfully crafted, a beautiful setting that was truly believable, uh, but just a slightly more vibrant, more vivid, more colourful version of reality. The story was warm and engaging, the classic songs fitted in smoothly, and Neil Setti was simply fantastic as Mowgli, adding a warmth and charm to the character that was not there in the cartoon version, and I, who I always found to be a bit, well, impudent. Peter concludes, to sum up... I love the way you put a bit, well... Impudent. Well, it's good. That's a hyphen. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just I'm making the letter. Very good. Yeah, yeah, very good. You're, you're bringing it to life. Thank you're you. making, you're painting a picture with words. To sum up, it was wonderful, all of it, and the best thing Disney has made in a long time. Thank you for encouraging us to see it. Hello to Jason and to my nephew-in-law, Alan Thomas in Sheffield, who I discovered this week is a fellow Wittertainee after he heard my name ran out on the show, which, unlike the Witter app, is a form of communication between listeners that is wholeheartedly sanctioned by the BBC. Meryl Streep in just a second. Uh, Simon, Did you know, I, I saw the Tottenham Hotspur play once. The only football match I've ever been to was taken by Adam Conway. I didn't understand who's anything Adam, of what was going on. Who's Adam Conway? He's a friend of mine from school. He took me to see it because he was a he was a sports fan. Mm. I, I, you know, and he's the only time I've ever been to a football. How match. long ago is this? Oh, I was fifteen, so it was like a long time. Didn't ago. Didn't really impress you. This is like uh, Danny Blanchfire push and run. No, push and run was early fifties. So Danny Blanchfire was early sixties. Was it around then? Pardon? Nothing. Was it the 80s? 70s? 70s. 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 Nice one, Cyril. Nice one, son. Cyril Knowles. Cyril Knowles. He was good. Pat Jennings? Yeah, well, this is great. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and then there was one... Who was the bald one? Alan Gilzine. Alan Gilzine. 
I am currently undergoing 33 sessions. Now, this is either salvage radiotherapy or savage radiotherapy. Okay. So he's written salvage, so I will say it's salvage radiotherapy. Okay. Over seven weeks to try to beat prostate cancer, which has returned despite my having my prostate removed just before my 56th birthday. Anyway, I'm writing a blog about this strange journey across the radiotherapy quarter. Okay. In one recent entry, I mused on what films to watch to keep me entertained on my daily journey into hospital and back because your podcast doesn't last all week. We should remedy that, because we could do a week-long podcast. We could do. In fact, the way that the extras are going, we're getting it's that way. there. So I have managed three suggestions, right? So he has a specific set. So these are movies to watch whilst going into and back from hospital for yeah. radiotherapy. Okay. The Cruel Sea with the peerless Jack Hawkins, the very embodiment of intelligent grit and determination. Film two... Richard Curtis's About Time for its glorious affirmation of seizing the day as the way to live our lives. Film three, Bridge of Spies, Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies for its great entertainment value, but also for the repeated exchange between Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. Tom Hanks saying, aren't you help? worried? And Mark Rylance saying, would it help? Why would it help? And it is, a, which is a great, <laughs> great response. But I would love to have a few more suggestions. This journey is beginning to drag a bit. And if possible, I'd like to send a was up to all the kind, patient and skilled staff in the radiotherapy department at University College Hospital in London. Other hospitals are available. You really didn't need to say that, Simon, for making this journey as smooth as possible. So he's got the cruel sea about time, Bridge of Spies. I imagine so that's a specific sort of mindset. He wants, he want, well, these movies, grit, yeah. determination, positivity. Well, can I, can I add local hero? Yes. Because I think that does actually i mean i know people don't think it has grit but it does you know it is and i, and, and I think that that is a film that's okay. absolutely a sort of you know uplifting of spirit i'm adding that so we can have uplifting of spirit and grit and determination as well as entertainment yeah one from you i i, I agree with you but you weren't going to put in Am amadeus well i could put in amadeus and if you put in the director's cut you get the extra bonus surprise <laughs> it's just after, fondant fancy it's just after the nipples of venus scene <laughs> anyway it's a surprising moment <laughs> <laughs> which has scarred you for put life. Put that in, put that in. Okay, so it's Local Hero and Amadeus. All right, but Grit and Determination also equally uh, valid. Ice Cold and Alex. I mean, there's, you know... Okay. It's going to be a long it's list. It's going to be a very long list. Yeah, but just start, but start with Local Hero because that is definitely the one that will absolutely... Thanks for the email, Sam. We will add uh, as we go through the programme. So it's uh, it's 2.42. I got the hour wrong when we went into the news. I, I did notice. I thought, wow, the show went really fast. Yes, that's right. And we, we haven't reviewed any films at all. Anyway, let's, uh, let's talk Florence Foster Jenkins, which is the new movie from Meryl Streep. Meryl will talk to us in just a second. Here's a clip in which you hear Meryl and Hugh Grant. It's going very, very, very well. I don't feel that I imbued the moment of inspiration with the intensity it deserved, but it was a serviceable attempt. Better than serviceable. It was good. My amulets, please. Amulets? Has the impending potato salad catastrophe been averted? Even as I speak, the chef has a team out scouring Manhattan for chives. No chives. What next, I wonder? Unconscionable, I know, but they tell me there is a war on, Bunny. Valkyrie's on stage, please. The overture has begun. What about the sandwiches? Ham and tomato, plain cucumber and chicken with a hint of Dijon mustard. Actually delicious. Excellent. How do I look? Wunderbar. <laughs> Now, Schnell, Schnell, go on quickly. You're a very naughty Valkyrie. 
And that is a clip from Florence Foster Jenkins, which stars, of course, Meryl Streep. Meryl, hello. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, we're speaking the day after the, uh, the, the big night, the, uh, the big premiere. How was, how was that? I have no memory of it. <laughs> do you like them? Do you dread them? I mean, is it just something that you have to do? Or? No, no. It's fantastic because I've, you know, I never see the films uh, with people real people sitting in, in the audience and the Odeon Leicester Square is one of the biggest houses so um, so you stayed for the packed. movie oh yes I watched the movie and and it's very gratifying to see feel the, the place rock with you know right. laughter and were you, were you did they laugh at the right places were you surprised at some of the reaction um, one thing that yes I, I mean yes I was surprised just by the the volume of it and everything, but I, I was surprised by things you don't really know when you're making a film, and that is, um, a, a character is established. This is specifically I'm speaking about Simon Helberg's character who plays Cosme McMoon. My fantastic, he, what a performance that is! <laughs> yes, a communist. And one of the things that happens is, as he has earned his place in the movie, he just appears on screen and, and they start laughing, <laughs> you know, right. in anticipation of what his reactions are going to be. And that was sort of divine to and see. People might recognize him from the Big Bang Theory. And, uh, exactly. That, and, uh, but we're, sli- we're slightly ahead of ourselves. So just tell us who Florence Foster Jenkins was. Florence Foster Jenkins was a socialite at the turn of the century in New York at a time when, uh, you know, very wealthy women who were very well educated often had no other outlet for their energies but clubs club women society women they gave money away basically they joined charitable groups she was one of those ladies she was the president of 60 clubs in new york city um and she doled away lots of money to uh, mostly arts organizations she underwrote Toscanini's uh, Carnegie Hall. She uh, did lots of things for indigent museum, musicians. And, um, and she was someone who secretly harbored a desire to be a singer herself. Loved opera, loved music. And so she would perform for her club ladies, basically closed audiences, but word of these performances spread throughout the city. She made private recordings that she distributed among her friends. And pretty soon word got out that this was something you had to see. And she was wildly uh, popular, her, her recordings. And she only made one professional um, outing, and that was she bought the hall at Carnegie Hall. And this was all during wartime. This was uh, 1944. And she made her debut on the night after Sinatra played, and she outsold Sinatra. They turned 2,000 people away, and um, it was a big hit, and yet it was a disaster because she, for the first time, read her reviews. (laughs) So right at the very end of your answer, we get a hint of the fact that she couldn't really sing. She couldn't really sing. And in fact, oh, the, did I neglect to say that? You didn't say that oh, at sorry. all. No. And also, I mean, the whole thing that, yes, I guess she did, she couldn't sing. That never occurred to me while I was making it, but um, <sighs> her delusion was fully supported by her husband of 25 years, and that was 
a man played by Hugh Grant called Bayfield St. Clair, and he would buy out all the newspapers in a five-block periphery around their apartment building, so she wouldn't read any of the buzz um, going up to this Carnegie Hall concert. But after Carnegie Hall, he couldn't keep the news from her. It's an astonishing story. I've been aware of Florence Foster Jenkins because the BBC record library is vast and extensive and, and I'd listened to the record many, many years ago. I've heard it and it's the mo- that's recording at Carnegie Hall yeah. and it is astonishing but it's a comedy record because the singing is so poor. So when, when people applauded, what, what were they applauding, do you think? Well, you know, this is a very interesting question because I I don't think we've all heard people sing badly you go to any karaoke club and you hear people sing badly you don't want to stay for more than one five second segment but I think part of what bought her um, her audience was her love of it I mean it was the true love of an amateur for the thing itself. And it wasn't how bad she was, it was how close she came to almost being okay. (laughs) And then when it would go wildly off, that was what was funny. And so interestingly, I, I, when I prepared, I tried to, I asked my friend Audra McDonald for her singing teacher, and she gave me Arthur Levy. He, He, and he really taught me the arias. And I tried to sing them as well as I could. They're very difficult. Yes. Well, she picked... It wasn't as though she picked a few easy songs to sing. No. She went for the most difficult arias it's possible to perform. Absolutely. She did the Lacme, the Libre, you know, uh, Uva la Jeune and Dure. And she did um, Queen of the Night, Mozart. She did all these really, really tough coloratura things. And she was... She almost made it up the mountain several times. But then her foot would slip. and um, But I think people loved seeing her um, honest enjoyment of it. She adored being center stage. But how is it possible for someone who, as you say, loved music, mm. was immersed in music, spent a lot of money on music, um, was responsible for Toscanini's uh, performance, which, which you mentioned, how is it possible for her to get to that point and then not realize that she's terrible. Well, I think she was musical when she, I mean, she did, was a, a, a piano prodigy. When she was eight years old, she did play at the White House. And then she um, had some nerve damage in her left hand. She couldn't be a pianist anymore. She heard music the way it should be done, and, and she was an appreciator. But uh, once I heard a, a recording of George Gershwin playing along and singing along with his own work, and if you've ever heard that recording, it's interesting because he's, uh, he's off he's he's off the pitch. In his head, we we imagine that George Gershwin knew what the pitch was, but what maybe people hear in their heads, and what actually comes out of their mouths is sometimes different. Because I, I ended the movie, one, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, it's, mm. a wonder, it's beautifully told, um, but it's a sad movie. Mm. And, and I thought that she maybe was, a, despite everything, was actually a sad woman. And I wondered also if, because she was rich and successful, 
we say eccentric, but I wonder if maybe she had mental health issues. I don't, I don't know. How did how did it feel to you? Well, she did. I mean, she lived for fifty years with syphilis, and uh, all the the there was a, a the remedy at that time was something called salvarsan, and it was a um, mixture of mercury and arsenic. And she took it every day. Actually, she bathed in it. Um, so, yes, at one of the... It it could be. The real Fo- Florence Foster Jenkins, I'm not sure how much of that is germane to our story. So much of our story is a suggestion of what... of what the truth is and what reality is and how we make it within our own heads because and within our own affections and our affect, uh, the the love that surrounds her not just from her husband but from her audiences who generally loved hearing her yes That's i wonder if she was deluded well love is a delusion often <laughs> but what we see is a her a beautiful one and one you know upon which the world is predicated in much poetry but it can but we, be, but it, we don't st- we don't stand up um, uh, at the Carnegie Hall and, and sing and <laughs> have that interesting relationship with Hugh Grant and you know what I just wondered if she just she clearly just saw the world in a different way, Meryl. E- yes, she perhaps saw the world in a different way. I think that's a very good way of of putting it. That uh, there are some people who see the glass half full and some who see it the other way. We all sort of have a choice of how to view the world in which we live. I mean, after all, this this film takes place. Stephen has... This is Stephen Frears. Yeah. Stephen Frears has sort of placed it in, in its time, and, and the time in which it was happening was wartime. People were coming back horribly... disfigured Um, it was nearing the end of the war Japan was uh, uh, in the death throes of its battle and the people had lived with a lot of deprivation and this was sort of an antidote to that we we see the necessity of that life as opposed to everything that can bring us despair and, and if we're talking about artifice, it's a, it's a beautiful period piece. It's America 1944, it's Carnegie Hall, and yet it isn't. I think it's Liverpool and it's the Hammersmith Apollo. Is it Hammersmith Odeon? <laughs> Where did you film? Yes, Hammersmith Odeon was the, um, uh, the location for Carnegie Hall, and there was a certain amount of manipulation of the, the upper boxes. Yeah. It's not I'm Smith way Odeon, out I of my no no it's not the one I saw I saw David Bowie or whatever um, you you saw David Bowie there I saw David Bowie somewhere I was so uh, well that was another life um, <laughs> how long ago was that well I don't I didn't know London very well so I went and saw him at some big theater and I think it was that one <laughs> but I'm not sure I was very young a long time ago how. Last time you were on the show was for Into the Woods, uh, which you sang magnificently in, and now you're singing 
Well, I'm just quoting from the poster, okay? Uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, the inspiring true story of the world's worst singer, which is slightly harsh, I think, but anyway. Is it more difficult to sing badly? Well, I think I, I do think it's as as I said, I really did learn these operas, these arias, and to sing them as well as I could, and then sort of played with where it might be fun to go off on them. Um, I listened to her and her peculiar, particular illusions are sort of genius <laughs> where they're vague. I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to make a, a pattern of them, which is great because you don't get sick of the inventive badness of her. Um, I think that the you mentioned Simon Helberg earlier, who, who yeah. plays your accompanist, and there are some some of the funniest scenes are when he is reacting for the first time to hearing your voice, uh, and then when he's on stage and uh, and acting at the piano fantastically. I imagine when you're rehearsing that, or maybe when you're actually filming it, you would have had quite a few takes because it's just so funny. <laughs> we did corpse quite a bit. <laughs> Simon and I had perhaps way too much fun prepping this. And we did clear out uh, the Apple Studios when we went in there <laughs> and started recording. We collected quite a, a, a sort of a listening audience. People came in and said, what are you doing? <laughs> you done a lot Simon's of... brilliant. And he really is. We're so lucky to have him because there are very few... Actors, I mean, this is, talk about a monumental task. He's playing this very, very difficult music and re reacting and acting on top of it. I mean, he's sort of the Victor Borga of... Yes, <laughs> I, saw, I saw Victor Borga. Yeah. Yes, what an extraordinary... Yes, well, exactly. you've done a lot of singing um, in recent films. Is that just coincidence? When, what, or, or are we going to see you singing a lot in the <laughs> no, future? No, or is no. that it now? No, that was just a coincidence because I don't, you know, I've I don't have a production company. Uh, and I just take the the films that come through the transom, and that's sort of what's happened. That was just coincidence, and I'm very happy about it. They've been very three very different things in a row: Sondheim, rock and roll, and Florence Foster Jenkins. I just wonder about the soundtrack of this because the mm. the the actual record was hugely popular. So this soundtrack is going to be an interesting one, the soundtrack of this movie. <laughs> yes. Well, I think Alexander uh, Desplat, who's done the, the music, the scoring, sort of blends a, a whimsical world. He's, he's an amazing uh, composer because he gets the feel of the film. He really understands it, and, and so he's blended elements of certain kinds of, I, I don't even know what the references are, Fellini, Amarcord, it feels like a little bit of um, pastiche. But yes, I, I remember reading that David Bowie's, uh, his favorite 25 recordings in all the world was some really interesting things on it. But one of them was the Florence Foster Jenkins wow. original record. Well, I wonder, we're now in a position we can do Meryl Streep's greatest hits as a release with some of your big songs on them. Uh, Meryl, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, I do appreciate it. Thank you. And she can come on any time. She can, any time. She's always very welcome. Always To very come welcome. on and say hi. Yeah, exactly. I'm Meryl Streep. Uh, and Florence Foster Jenkins is out in a couple of weeks. 
time. And I think we haven't got time to do it now, but we should include some Florence Foster Jenkins in yes. the next hour, just so people can hear quite how extraordinarily strange it is. Yeah. Because the poster says, as I said in the interview, the world's worst singer. She clearly is not the world's worst singer. She just chose the wrong tracks and obviously couldn't hear how bad she was. I'm really looking forward to seeing the film because I saw Marguerite a few weeks ago, which is, but coincidentally, pretty much the same story, a fictionalised version, French fictionalised version of the, of, the, the, of the story of Florence Foster Jenkins, which I really liked. But the genius of it was you were never laughing at her. You were laughing with her. And I hope that's the same with this. Uh, we'll review that when it comes out in a couple of weeks' time. What else is coming out in the next hour that you going to have a chat about we're going to do bastille day we're going to do louder than bombs we're going to do miles ahead we're going to do friend request all this and more rachel and harry in lisbon in county antrim every week i save up uh, this is rachel primarily wittertainment friendly chores until friday afternoon when i can settle down to watch your fabulous film review all right so she's doing the live stream i manage that from two till two fifty then i dash out to the car in order to listen to you both until the news at three this being school pickup time i can then never get to hear the second hour because i'm preoccupied with homework uh, but catch up later uh, as much as I can using the podcast. Yesterday, unfortunately, though, my son came out in full chickenpox rash. This was a disaster until I realised that there could be an advantage. Today I'm sitting in the kitchen with you both propped up on the table and I have company. So my son says, so this is what you do when I'm at school. Does anyone else know? <laughs> so far, he's agreed with Mark on Zootropolis commented on the accidental hour fast-forward from Simon yeah. and loved the was-up. And he's currently... say, Jeremy Vine would never have made that mistake. Of course he wouldn't, no. Absolutely the rookie not. error. He's currently transfixed by Meryl Streep and hearing listener reviews. He's sad that we can't make our planned trip to see The Jungle Book on Saturday. What could have been a rather itchy, uncomfortable afternoon has now become rather enjoyable for both of us. And even better, judging by his reaction, 3 till 4pm might just be possible from now on. Excellent. So, Rachel and Harry. Harry, welcome to this slightly strange and deranged world uh, which we're in that we call home entertainment and home so uh, give us a full rundown of everything that you're planning to review in this hour Bastille Day Louder Than Bombs Miles Ahead Jane Got A Gun you know and if you follow uh, a number of ways of following uh, the programme but if you do Snapchat uh, I how think, do you do Snapchat? Well, you just do Snapchat. And I think we've done our virtual reality 360-degree tour uh, of the studio. So can you actually, you can now see that on... That's right. I mean, it's really, really amazing, which it's almost as though... Dead amaze. It's just one guy standing and spinning round. <laughs> That's, it could be that, but actually it's so much more. Uh, so it's nine minutes past. Tell us something that's brand new and quite interesting. OK, so let's do Bastille Day, which is um, uh, from director James Watkins, who did uh, Eden Lake, which was gruelling, and The Woman in Black, which we talked about earlier on, uh, previously on this programme, saying that it was the film which was probably too scary to be a uh, 12 certificate. Um, this uh, is a thriller set in Paris. Uh, Idris Elba is a CIA agent. At the beginning of it, we have uh, Richard Madden, who is a light-fingered pickpocket, who manages to steal a bag which has in it a terrorist device. He thereby causes an explosion. Unwittingly, the next thing, the CIA, including Idris Elba, are after him. Here's a clip. The image has been matched with one Michael. Outstanding warrants in four states for short con fraud. Skip Bale fled the country, entered France on a tourist visa. We contacted his mother, only heard from her son twice in the last 18 months, both times collect call from a payphone in Paris. She had no idea where he is or what he's doing. Quote, just like his dad, he's always running away from something, mostly himself. So what are we doing? We're looking for a data trail, stolen credit cards, bank accounts. Say a payphone? Yeah. 
So what are we waiting for? Let's go get him. Same payphone in 18 months. He lives on that street. A direct action could compromise connections to a wider terrorist You're a network. citizen, kills four people in Paris. We missed it on your watch. We sit on our asses while he strikes again. Right, this isn't Baghdad, it's Paris. Red wine, the Louvre, Louis Vuitton. You can't just run and start firing. I love that line. It's Paris, red wine, the Louvre, Louis Vuitton. <laughs> so, what? The Pont Neuf. Yeah, exactly, yeah, which, which, as we all know, means... The new bridge. The new bridge, not the ninth bridge. So I went into Bastille Day sort of, you know, expecting to be underwhelmed and came out rather pleasantly surprised. It is, I mean, I have to say, you know, ridiculous in terms of its plotting. But as opposed to something like London is Falling, it doesn't have any of that sort of nasty xenophobia. It doesn't leave that unpleasant, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have that nastiness to it. In fact, what it, what it is more interested in is picking a point, picking apart prejudice as part of its unraveling plot, rather than just celebrating it. And I, it is very interesting. We put this next to London Has Fallen. This is the much more likable film in every respect for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's quite well helmed by uh, James Watkins. There are some, you know, some crunchy fight sequences. There's uh, a, a terrific uh, rooftop chase sequence. Um, it's a film in which it's, you know, nuts and bolts thrills, but they're done in a sort of in an efficient way that makes the film you know, move at a good cracking pace. The second thing is that Idris Elba, who is currently sort of one of the people who is, as far as the bookies are concerned, one of the front runners to take over James Bond. I think it's Tom Hardy and Tom Hiddleston and him are the sort of, the, you know, the top three. And when you watch uh, Bastille Day, you can kind of go, OK, fine, I, could, I can completely imagine that working because despite the fact that his accent, his American accent is, you know, occasionally uh, a little wobbly, what he does do is bring a gravitas to that uh, central role in as much, that you end up investing in the character. I mean, essentially what happens is, firstly, he's tracking the guy who is the pickpocket and then inevitably, because it's a generic convention, the two of them end up having to work together in pursuit of unravelling actually what going on with all this sort of the whole plot is to do with unrest being sparked by internet hashtags and nothing is what it seems and nobody is who they appear to be and so you get at the center of it this kind of chalk and cheese pairing and it actually works quite well the the the, the main thing with those movies with those sort of movies which end up being odd couple movies is do you actually want to spend any time in the company of these people and in the case of this you do so i mean it is quite uh, ridiculous in terms of its plotting but it's not it's not like criminal which is just stupid and uh, you know one of those things I mean I know somebody wrote a, an email saying that they quite like criminal but they then they then basically qualified that by saying it was rubbish and Gary Oldman was rubbish and it was rubbish but I kind of enjoyed it in the case of this this isn't it's actually sort of perfectly efficiently put together and uh, Elber I think is uh, pretty uh, terrific in in the central role and there are one or two sort of chase sequences as I said that main chase which happens which is really sort of well executed in fact it was the second second really good rooftop chase I've seen this week this in the last couple of weeks because we were talking about fan earlier on uh, with Shah Rukh Khan and that has a really terrific sort of rooftop chasing as well so it's nothing that you haven't seen before but it's done slickly and with just enough of subverting the generic conventions to make it not exactly what you'd expect it to be and I watched it and it passed the time perfectly happily and I thought Idris Elba handled it very very well and what's it called? it's called Bastille Day do you know when the when the, the, uh, the masses did in fact storm the Bastille how many people did they release? two two a couple of drunks that's it, <laughs> that's it. there's nothing in there it's hardly... I mean, obviously, it's a, an inspirational, revolutionary moment for, for drunks everywhere. <laughs> and For drunks and the French. 
Do you know why I know that? Because you studied history and no, have a good grasp. Of me. Oh, did I? And you've got your memory so short. Yes. You've actually got to the point that I'm at with now that you can't remember the stories that you've told and the stories you haven't. I told. reached that many, many years ago. Uh, but thanks for the clarification. Beaver Scouts, uh, age six to eight. Cubs are eight to ten. Oh, right. Uh, Scouts, 10 to 14. Explorers, 14 to 18. Cubs are 100 years old this year. And the Odeon did special Well, all Cubs are 100 years old. Wow, it's incredible because they look so young. Amazing, but they're all 100. And the Odeon did special screenings and Cubs and their families went to see the film last weekend. The third Epsom Cubs thought it was fab and gave it five stars. Jane Muir uh, says, Cubs move up to Scouts at 10 and a half and they do pledge allegiance. They promise to keep the Scout law. My daughter Grace started, and I think this is Ellerton Cumbruff Scouts in East Yorkshire, just after Christmas, and is one of the girls that now make up one in four Scouts in the UK. Mark missed out on a fantastic part of growing up. Best thing she ever did, because she loves it. Thank you. Thank you. But if you can be uh, a cub till you're 100, then... then, then, then exactly. Then I can, I'm, still, I'm still 50, well, no, 46 years away from, from doing it. Anyway, what else is out? Should we do Louder Than Bombs? Um, this is an interesting film, which is the English-language debut from Norwegian director Joachim Trier. Um, takes its title, Louder Than Bombs, takes its title from a Smith's album, which in turn took, took its title from Elizabeth Smart's by Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept. And this played in Cannes in competition last year, we're 2016 now, in 2015. And when it played at Cannes, the reviews sort of drew comparison between it and Ordinary People, which I think is a slightly slightly misleading comparison, although I do understand where that comparison comes from. Essentially, the story is Isabel Huppert is a war photographer who at the beginning of the movie has died and we meet the family, her family, Gabriel Byrne, who is her father, and uh, the children, Jesse Eisenberg, who is the older uh, child, and Devin Druid, who is the younger child, 15. And they are in the run-up to an exhibition, a retrospective exhibition of her life and work. And there is also about to be a newspaper article about her life and work. And what the film then does is flips back and forwards between what counts for the present between that story, the lead-up to the exhibition and the lead-up to the newspaper article, and events from their previous life and the differing ways in which differing members of the family remember their mother, their wife. Uh, Isabel Huppert does appear in the film, obviously, in flashback and in memory, and one of the things that the film does rather well is to revisit events constantly from slightly different perspectives in slightly different versions, so the whole film has a sort of slightly dreamy quality to it. But one of the key... Plot points is that the newspaper article is going to reveal that the crash she died in might not have been entirely accidental, might, in fact, have been something that was prompted by depression. In the clip we're going to hear, Gabriel Byrne is telling his older son, Jesse Eisenberg, that he has to tell his younger son, Conrad, about this before the newspaper article appears. Jesse Eisenberg's character thinks not. He's not doing that well. I don't don't think you should tell him. Tell me last night. I don't know. Don't you think he deserves to know the truth? The truth? What is the truth? What's some story that Richard wants to write now? Is that the truth? He's going to make her out to seem like she's some kind of depressed person. No, I don't think he will. She was depressed. You know that, right? I mean, you were away at college. Right? (laughs) Sometimes I think it must have been really hard for you. I mean, it was tough here. You, you, You didn't know what was really going on. I mean, it was... Yeah, you, you couldn't know what was going on. Actually, I did know what was going on because she called me all the time. Like, when she wouldn't talk to you, she would talk to me. So I I spoke to her all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, I guess this story suits you perfectly, though, because then you can make her out to be the negligent parent, and you can be, like, the perfect parent. Uh, uh, I don't want to argue about this. You get a sense from that clip of the sort of musing nature of the film, and I know that it has divided people. I know that some people have taken against it. Uh, it is a film about the way in which everybody hurts, and occasionally, in being that, it can be somewhat trite. That said... I was rather taken with it for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's a film which has some superb performances. I mean, I think Isabelle Huppert is just a mesmerising screen presence. And although she's not in the movie that much, she dominates the screen because the memory of her character, the presence of her character, is absolutely there in, you know, in every frame of the film. Gabriel Byrne, too, I think is... I mean, he's one of my favourite actors and it, it, you don't often get the chance to see him being given, you know, in, in, in the cinema being given the chance to remind you why it is that you kind of first fell in love with him. Second thing about it is, is it's a film which shuffles its time frames like a pack of cards being, cards being dealt really beautifully. It's a film which flips between the past and the present, between dreams and reality, between imagination and fact, in a way which is so sort of subtly done that you get a sort of dreamy, woozy, um, slightly hallucinatory, heightened reality feel, which I liked very much. The film does a very good job of picking away at the fact that all its central characters appear to be leading more than one life. All of them have got some kind of dual life going on, and this mirrors the way in which Isabel, the central character had two lives. One of them was her working life, which placed her in danger. The other was her home life, and she could never quite reconcile the two. Now, there there would, may seem to be a thematic comparison, therefore, between this and A Thousand Times Goodnight, the film in which Juliette Binoche plays a war photographer who similarly can't reconcile her domestic and work life. In, in fact, tonally, and this sounds weird, the films that it reminded me of the most are... Donnie Darko, to some extent, it had some of the... You've seen Donnie Darko, haven't you? Many years ago. You remember the sort of that, that, that atmosphere, the almost unreal atmosphere of the suburban domesticity? It has some of that. It has, on the sidelines, a hint of, we need to talk about Kevin, Lynn Ramsey's movie, and Lynn Ramsey's name will come up again uh, in this programme, that sense that something might be about to turn really terrible. Also, there's a little bit of Sam Mendes's American Beauty. Again, that slight sense of dreaminess of the the reality of any circumstance being just swimming on the border between being awake and being asleep. You know that kind of that sort of half waking state. And there's one there's one shot in it in which the camera just looks at Isabelle Huppert for what feels like two minutes or something, and you see on her face this symphony of expressions it's a film in which the camera gives the cast plenty of room to find their characters but it's also not afraid of lingering on faces on a two-shot on a close-up on an apparently incidental moment now i do understand why it is that for some people that might seem to be as i said the word i used before was it might seem to be tweet it might seem to be self-indulgent but I, I didn't find it was at all despite the fact that it is in a genre of films with which i have often found those problems actually it had a kind of you know tone poem quality to it that rather won me over and i did find myself being slowly hypnotically entranced by the mood of it by the score which is very ambient very um you know in the background but just 
just filling in the blanks as much uh, as you need. And I, I also thought, and this is the most important thing, with characters that I cared about, characters who, despite the fact that, you know, whatever the, whatever the circumstances of their life were, the movie made me care about them, particularly the character played by Devin Druid, Comrade, who is the young teenage son, who at first appears to be just completely insufferable and, you know, he's horrible to his father and uh, aggressive and rude and difficult and just wants to play video games. And there's a, actually there's a very, very funny sequence in it in which... Um, his father attempts to communicate with him by joining in video games, which I won't spoil the gag. Unlike me, I, in this particular case, I won't spoil the gag because I want you to enjoy it for yourself. But I liked it. I thought it had a, I thought it had a, a, an impressive atmosphere to it. And it was one of those films that quietly and discreetly got under my skin. And it's called Louder Than Bombs. I think astute and careful listening to this programme, uh-huh. will reveal that actually that will... I, mean, we, I don't know this and we haven't discussed it before, but that sounds to me like the movie of the week. You because, love doing this, don't you? Well, I think, you, I think most people can tell <laughs> in the way that you... Uh, if you have particularly enjoyed and relished the delicious nature of a movie... You're talking like me now, aren't you? You're doing like a parody of me. <laughs> then my guess is, and who knows, because it won't be unveiled for at least 34 minutes, Okay. my guess is Louder Than Bombs is going to be okay. uh, movie of the week. But anyway, there are lots of other things uh, that you might want to uh, to mention. Shall I leap ahead, or are you going to do any Jungle Book? Uh, I was going to do. I'm going to do some Jungle Book after three. Fine, 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 fine. Are fine, you okay. feeling mystical? I'm... By the way, there's a, there's a request for a, for a Mystic Mark appearance. Well, we as we know, Mystic Mark doesn't know what he's talking about after half time, and you know why? Because people can't read the future. And it doesn't matter who they are. But maybe... They can't. But maybe... We saw Darren Brown last night, incidentally. Oh, really? Yeah. I I just love the way that what he does is he debunks all that stuff by going, I can't do any... But I can't... But then he does them anyway and then says, yeah, and it's a trick. That's why he's in the spirit of Harry Houdini, who basically devoted his life to exposing... To exposing... Exactly. Fraudsters. Exactly so. Anyway, let's just see if you... Let's just see if the the moment is with you. Yeah, Okay. Okay. Go ahead. If the chi... The more random, the better. Maybe the chi is flowing. Yeah. Who knows? Oliver, you aged... two lumps with your chi? Thank you. Oliver is... <laughs> Hello? Four... Is it chi you're looking for? Let me know when you're done. Go, I'm done now. Oliver is 14. Okay? Yeah. Dear Beauty and the Beast, let's not ask. I'm writing to tell you on behalf... Some of the English is a little bit erratic, by yeah. the way. Please don't correct. I'm writing to tell you on behalf of a love problem... Instantly, I'm slightly confused. As one of your younger listeners, teenage love is usually dismissed as hormones or just a phase. Have you ever said that? I don't believe I've ever used either of those terms. However, in the general aura of my predicament, your wittering and banter, as us youths call it, I don't think they use banter, has helped me to be inspired uh, to write to you. I've been with my partner for about four months and I've found a problem. She's like Graham Norton's agony slot on Saturday morning. Real Graham. Okay. She's Oliver's 14. First of all, he's referring to this girl as a partner. Anyway, we've been together four months and I found a problem. She's found a job at the local cricket club and seems now to spend all her time at the weekend there, including Friday nights, around a load of boys, which means I rarely see her outside of school. Sure, I see her at school, but that's hardly the same. I was wondering if I could have a little advice from Mark and yourself. Do I end the relationship? Do I ask the other boys what she's like at the club? This advice will be most helpful. Love the show, Steve, from Oliver. And a prediction about my future from Mystic Mark would be really helpful. I'll give you a prediction. Everything is going to be fine. Regardless of how this yeah. particular relationship... It does sound as though she's 
she she has she she has a limited she's interested elsewhere don't you think i'm just not even going to well he just sees I'm her just, at school I know. friday night she's at the club weekend she's at the club i know well i just want to say firstly but asking for advice in love matters from me the person who took somebody to see the texas chainsaw massacre and was then surprised when they walked out and was then even more surprised when they were crossed because i didn't walk out with them really that i have nothing here okay. that can help but however i yes. can guarantee you if my mystic powers it's all going to be all right can i make let, can we just make a practical thing here for oliver age 14 yeah, right. go on. Just can you? Um, can I just ask you to tread very carefully? I will do. I know this is this is enti- this is entirely okay. No, fine. fine, 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 okay. fine. Because as we all know, there is no trauma like teen love trauma. Exactly. There ain't no party like an S club party. So there ain't no trauma like a teen love trauma. Oliver has this issue. She's very interested in hanging around somewhere else. So what I'm going to suggest is, no. can you look at the box office top ten mm-hmm. and then say, Oliver, why don't you say to this girl? Mm-hmm. Who you refer to as your partner? Can you yeah, say that's to a th- very grown-up? I know. I'd have thought girlfriend would have been fine. By the way, you're 14. Girlfriend is perfectly fine. Let's just say this this girl then. Yes. Why don't you say to her, "Hi, hi, what's up? I'd like to take you to insert name of movie the here, Jungle Book, the Jungle Book, the or, Jungle Book, yeah, or Eddie the Eagle, or Huntsman, or or the Jungle Book." BVS Dodge. Why did you ask me for a suggestion and I'm then just, do a whole lot of other things? Just thinking... That the to, Jungle Book. To give, to give him a whole kind of uh, armoury. OK, of so what you're saying is basically take it to any screening that he can get into at the age of 14. What's cool? What would be a really... I'm just The one, Jungle Book. Yes, but not if you're 14. You see, I don't think... I don't think that would be a cool thing to do. OK, Jungle Book or what would be the other movie? Maybe Batman Superman? Really? Come, come. Yeah, come with me and sit whilst a bunch of people hit each other doesn't in the matter. dark for two hours and then every now and then we have a trailer for some other movies that are coming in 2017. Oh, doesn't, doesn't it? It just matters. It's about, the, about image and reputation. I'm just concerned about Oliver. So you think Oliver's reputation would be enhanced by saying that he wants to see Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, rather than seeing Jungle Book? Possibly, yes. Right, well, I think that's wrong. I think that anyone who's smart would go, I'm with you, kid. If you think the Jungle Book is the one to go and see, as opposed to Batman versus Superman, then you're a smart kid. So maybe Oliver should say, I w- "There are a couple of movies that are available. I've got. Uh, I would like to go and see the that's Jungle a, Book. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. That's if the one. you would rather, we can do that. But my preference would be. Yeah, yeah. Or you could just say, "There are many movies that are available. What would you like to see?" And then whatever she says, agree. Or you could just say, "Why are you hanging out with those guys?" No. <laughs> anyway, so that's and and or the you could go to the pictures on your own, which is how I solve the problem. The prediction the for the future is everything is going to be everything all right. is going to be all right. I have a feeling about this. Okay. Everything is going to be all right. One nil by half time. That was what I said with the Tottenham match, wasn't it? It was one nil at half time, but then it was and then it all fell. and then it all, <laughs> and it all went the other way. All right. Uh, and, and while we're doing that, in, uh, as you brought up the subject, yes. Sarah in Glasgow. It has recently come to my attention that after listening to the the show for as long as I can remember, maybe since I was 10 years old, that I rarely go to the cinema at all. The last film I viewed was Inside Out, uh, and that was with some convincing. I'm a big fan of film, but with lacklustre friends and no boyfriend on the horizon, I was wondering on the judgment of bringing myself to the cinema. Yes. I do watch films after DVD release, but it's not quite the same. What would be your opinion? And I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah, go on. on your own. That's what I did. It's the best possible thing. You don't have to you know, worry about whether anybody else is enjoying it. You don't have to worry whether anybody else thinks that the chainsaw is being overused. You don't have to worry. You just None of those problems. You can just sit there thinking... 
I'm watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is fab. The Misanthropes Guide to the Movies. There wasn't nothing misanthropic about it at all. I just enjoyed it. Sarah, just go on your own. That's perfectly yeah. fine. Lo- loads of people do. And Oliver, everything's going to be fine. Uh, so, uh, coming up in the next half hour... Miles re- ahead, Jane got a gun. At least. At least. Very TV good. movie of the week. Uh, Jimmy Fletcher, uh, from the list that we've uh, that we put up, says it's got to be a multiple choice. The lovely, dreamy... Her, the stunningly acted and emotional dramatic punch of Blue is the Warmest Colour, and the mysterious, sensual The Duke of Burgundy. These are all beautiful, engrossing dramas. I think Mark is going to pick The Duke of Burgundy, though. Peter Strickland on top form. Marcus Evans says, Duke of Burgundy still on my list of films to watch after Robbie Collins' glowing review of it. Uh, Helen Whiteoak, The Duke of Burgundy, deserves to be master this week. Impossible to surmise with words. It is a visual layer upon layer upon layer of texture treat. Natalie Carter, her is one of the best films I've seen in years. Just set to record. Can't wait to watch it again and get lost in the moon song. And Mark Gorman, it's been a pretty amazing week. Uh, filled with strong TV movie week contenders, I'll go with her. The film is special on so many levels, but this time around, I think I'll focus on its wonderful soundscape, including Arcade Fire's ethereal supersymmetry. What is our movie of the week? I'm going to go for The Duke of Burgundy, which is on Film 4 at 11.15 on Thursday the 28th. Frankly, 11.15 on Film 4 is pretty pretty mainstream as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to go for it for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it is... A movie which pretty much defies description. If you say it's a movie about um, uh, butterflies and fetishism, that's kind of as close as you can get to a plot synopsis. It's directed by Peter Strickland, whose work I absolutely love. It has a wonderful uh, soundtrack by Cat's Eyes, and it's one of those movies in which I have read many descriptions of Duke of Burgundy, and very few of them come close to describing what the film's actually like to watch. I, I genuinely think Peter Strickland is is a genius. I mean, you, you know how much we love Barbarian Sound Studio. You remember having um, Toby Jones come on to talk about Barbarian Sound Studio. I mean, I think I think he's a really extraordinary director. And if you haven't seen Duke of Burgundy, I mean, it wasn't a huge box office hit or anything, but it's very, very well respected. Then check it out. It is on Film 4 at 11.15pm on Thursday. The uh, it's Going up against Question Time on BBC Two in that case, I would think. But, but just, yes, yeah, set your video recorder to... Uh, with the set right, your recording device. <laughs> to the right time with the right code and everything is going to be fine. Uh, we'll get to some more Jungle Book before four o'clock, but a okay. couple of new movies first of all. So let's do Miles Ahead, which is directed by, co-written by and starring and indeed partly composed by uh, Don Cheadle. And it is a fanciful, although he prefers the word metaphorical, story of Miles Davis, Um Set over a number of different time frames, uh, the central time frame is uh, end of 1970, 1979. Miles Davis has fallen silent for a few years and he is visited by Ewan McGregor's wannabe Rolling Stone journalist who, in, I have to say, rather unconvincing fashion, knocks on his door and says, Mr Davis, Mr Davis, I know you're in there. I just want to get an interview. And uh, the two of them then go off, well, frankly, into the night in what is a strange mix of musical biopic, jazz-like invention and strange throwback exploitation movie mashup. Here's a clip. Look, I think we just got off on the wrong foot. I just need a little background. I mean, I could write some book out of a magazine, but I'd rather hear it in your own words, you know? Miles Davis story, my work. That would be great. All right. Okay. I was born, I moved to New York, met some cats, made some music, did some dope, made some more music, then you came to my house. That's it. 
Great, I guess I'll fill in the blanks later. So what are you writing anyway, right? Right there. Which in a way gives you the, the sort of the general sense of the film. Now, what then happens is that we flip between different time periods as Miles Davis, as played by Don Cheadle, attempts to recapture his inspiration, flashing back to his past relationship and the inspiration that it caused forward to the present and also then intercut with another later, apparently later television interview in which he begins the movie by saying, don't just, you know, don't just give, you want to tell a story, tell a story with some attitude. And that's kind of what the film is attempting to do. Now, on the on the positive front, um, I think what Don Cheadle's done with this is kind of adventurous. He describes the structure of the film as being modal, you know, like modal jazz is that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of going back and forth between these two sort of contra, well, th- two, three, four contrapuntal ideas and it mixes and, and mismatches its ideas. And there are some rather nice hallucinogenic flourishes. Uh, it's kind of a repetitive boxing motif, which at one point they're in a boxing match and the boxers turn into jazz musicians in the ring. We see visions of the past and the present intertwining. We hear music overlapping and we see live performance, which is also theatrical, but also... But we also have, in at the centre of it, this, uh, as I said, rather fanciful story of the Rolling Stone, in inverted commas, Rolling Stone, because there's a question about whether he really is a Rolling Stone journalist, turning up and saying, I really want to get the story, and then them going off in a car together and then being involved in a caper which involves stolen tapes and gunfights and car chases and all manner of stuff that I have to say, from my point of view, drags it rather into the territory of Grand Theft Parsons, which is that you, I'm not sure that you actually need this kind of invention. When Cheadle's been talking about it, he said that the whole point is that what he didn't want to do was to do a straight biopic. What he wanted to do was something that captured the anarchic spirit, the original gangster spirit, as he describes it, uh, of Miles Davis. And I, I, I confess that that element didn't entirely come together for me. I, there was parts of me I just thought, just just give me just the facts ma'am just give me the straight story however um i understand that what he's trying to do is kind of is structurally and uh you know in terms of the form of the film to mirror the adventurousness of the jazz and also apparently davis hated it being referred to as jazz he preferred the term social music and also this repetitive motif that occurs throughout the film which is all that stuff is old we don't want old what we want is new why would you revisit the past why would you do something that we already know so in fact the film almost writes into its dna this kind of logic of saying well we're not going to we're not going to do a fact and we are going to have characters who are effectively younger versions of the young mars we are going to play fast and loose with the facts we're going to draw on myth and legend and invention and it didn't quite work for me, but even in not quite working, I thought there were things about it. Was, it's certainly a film that's made with a lot of passion, certainly a film that's made with a lot of conviction, and certainly a film that's made by somebody who is you know, absolutely committed to their subject matter. As I said, it didn't fully come together for me, but it wasn't without certain pleasures. And one of the great pleasures was that Don Cheadle is actually really good uh, in the, as being the various incarnations of Mars Davis. If you just joined us, you missed Meryl Streep, who was with us about an hour ago. You missed Meryl Streep. And you can How could it, you have done that? You can pick it up on the po- podcast if you're cursing yourself even now. How can you do that? She was talking about Florence Foster Jenkins. Paul, which comes out in a couple of weeks' time, Paul inhales Owen. Uh, Mark and Simon, is Meryl edging for a chuckle-off with, with Mrs Courtney and Branagh? It's funny, you know, I actually thought exactly the same thing because she was she was doing some very charming very charming chuckling. Wouldn't it be amazing if our super fast 
an utterly brilliant production team, had already done that. Have they? Well, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, laughter. W- what a performance that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they're very difficult. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's off the pitch. <laughs> the manipulation of the, the upper boxes is not the one I saw. <laughs> How long ago was that? And I think it was that one. <laughs> but I'm not sure. When we went in there <laughs> and started recording, people came in and said, what are you doing? <laughs> the Victor Borga of... Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, rather that's just great. She's that's that's top-level production teaming, isn't it? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? And Victor Borger, by the way, yeah. who, who you she, talked about earlier she refers on. to, is a, I think he was Danish, and he did this thing called phonetic punctuation. It was, he, he's, he was a, a concert pianist and comedian. And what we'll do is we'll put it on the playlist. I'm just deciding that we're okay, even putting it to the committee. We might put some in the podcast. It's very funny. Uh, and that's who uh, who she was referring to. But, Paul, thank you for suggesting the chuckle-off. Uh, it, it's a small list, but Courtney, Branner and Streep, top chucklers, long may they continue. Top chucklers all round. Uh, some Jungle Book stuff in just a second. Let's uh, do... Is it Jane Got a Gun? Well, yeah, let me do one, something else before that very quickly, which is Arabian Nights Volume 1, The Restless One. There are three uh, volumes of this coming out. This is Miguel Gomez's uh, Arabian Nights uh, a Portuguese director who, at the, at the very beginning of the film, it says this is not an adaptation of the book The Arabian Nights. It is, in fact, a collection of stories, characters and places inspired by facts that occurred in Portugal between August 2013 and July 2014. It's a film which is basically about austerity and about the political fallout of austerity. It begins looking like a documentary about the closure of a shipyard and it begins with a sequence in which the director, unable to reconcile his idea that he wants to make a, a, a magical uh, film full of wonderful seductive stories and the miserable state of his country literally runs off the set of his movie. He is then pursued by his crew who catch him and uh, he's going to be sentenced. But he says, okay, how about if I tell you some fascinating stories? Well, that's, that kind of gets you into the Arabian Nights thing. What we then have is a series of stories that take sort of structural links from, you know, Scheherazade and the, and the stories of the Arabian Nights just in terms of the, the structure, but actually are all based upon... Uh, research and interviews and things which had happened uh, during that actual period. So it's a strange mixture of facts, fact and fantasy, a kind of docu-fantasy. Um, it is uh, a wild and crazy ride. It is uh, shambolic in structure. It, as I said, there are three different parts of it. Part one this week, part two opens next week, part three opens the week after that. It's a film which is by turns uh, satirical and inventive and occasionally very, very angry. It manages to make strange connections work surprisingly well you have to give yourself over to it is definitely a film which requires you to sort of succumb to its uh, to its form and ideally i think the director said that what he ideally wanted was people to see the film one one day after each other in case of this that's actually going to be one week after and there is going to be a screening i, had, I do know some people have seen all three parts in the same day i'll review the part two next week but i have to say from the point of view of part one it's a very, very bold, very arresting start, which has a, you know, a, a strange mixture of, as I said, docu-fantasy, a way of telling a story that has a sort of fabulous structure but is also absolutely underpinned by a desire to talk about a country and its economic crisis in a way which is bawdy and to some, to some extent vulgar and to some extent sort of you know, anarchic but also actually 
at the, by the end of part one, you felt that it had more structure than you expected at the beginning. It's also very, very visually arresting. Uh, something which is going to be playing in more cinemas, undoubtedly, is uh, Jane Got a Gun, which is a Western based on a screenplay that was on the... Black, do you know what the blacklist is? These are uh, the screenplays that are very good but haven't been, haven't been, made. Haven't been made. Exactly. So Brian Duffield's screenplay was on the blacklist in 2011. And uh, it was originally going to be direct. I just say how amazed I am that you asked me a question and I knew the answer. I know. I was so thrown that I just ignored the fact that you knew the answer okay. and carried straight on because <laughs> I actually don't have any way of responding to you knowing the I'm answer. I'm sorry about that. Okay, so... um again. So Lynn Ramsey was going to direct. Lynn Ramsey, the director of We Need to Talk About Kevin, who is one of my favourite filmmakers. You remember she came on the programme and was such a fabulous guest. Anyway, she was slated to direct. Then on the first day of production, she left, as indeed did Jude Law. Michael Fassbender had originally been in one role. He had had to move on. Then Jude Law left because he had signed on to make a movie with Lynn Ramsey. So when he left, he was uh, Bradley Cooper, stepped into the field. And then Bradle T. Cooper, as we like to refer to him, he left as well. So he has now been replaced by Ewan McGregor. The story essentially is Jane. Natalie Portman is the woman whose husband brings the threat of home invasion to her door after a run-in with the Bishop boys. She then has to turn to Joel Edgerton to ask for help. Meanwhile, Ewan McGregor, who is now in the role of the key Bishop boy, is looking for her and indeed her husband. Here's a clip. Found Fitzmaul shot up in an alley. Half his head on one side, half his head on another. A man or woman seen leaving lullaby for the blood drive. And the girl fit the description of our old friend Jane. Now, Fitcham's demise brings Hammond's tally to five dead men, disregarding his heroics at the whorehouse we all remember. Now, we'll spread out across this valley here. Question every living soul. We will turn over every rock until that snake slithers out into sight. It's a strange thing with Jane Got a Gun because on the one hand there are things that I really want to like about it. I think Natalie Portman's performance is pretty solid. I think it has a sort of sturdily handsome uh, sense and you know the fact that it's a kind of uh, it, it's a western but with a modern twist, telling a story from a perspective that perhaps you wouldn't expect. However. I have to say that, you know, having now finally arrived on our screens, directed uh, by Gavin O'Connor, the most remarkable thing about it is just how unremarkable it is. And uh, you and I were talking about this earlier on because you'd read a review in which it said, you know, considering the, the, the incredibly chaotic production history that it had, what's surprising is that it's actually OK. And it is OK. It's, in, you know, it's, it's OK. But that's, it's no more than that. And the fact of the matter is that Lynn Ramsey would never have helmed a film that was unremarkable. I mean, whether you love or hate her work, it's distinctive. It has an, it has a, 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 has a flavor. It has a texture. It has a, it has a personality. And in the case of this, as we have it now, it just feels far more workaday. Although the narrative is perhaps doing something which is kind of adventurous in terms of its its gender roles. Although it's actually not quite as adventurous as it used to be. The script, the screenplay, has of course been rewritten several times since it was on that uh, original um, uh, blacklist. I just spent a lot of it thinking, this is fine, this is fine, but I want this to be so much more than fine. What I want it to be is fascinating and intriguing and you know exciting and strange and all those things that I'm sure Lynn Ramsey would have brought to it. I mean, the problem is you never know what any film would have been. You know, who knows what Khodorovsky would have made of Dune? Who knows 
you know, who knows what David Cronenberg would have made of Star Wars? Who, you know, who all old David Cronenberg would have made of uh, Basic Instinct 2, which he did actually, there was a period when Basic Instinct 2 was nearly a Cronenberg film. I mean, he was nearly going to be the director of it because the guy, his producer came to him and said, look, read this script. He said, I know it's Basic Instinct 2. But just imagine it's not Basic Instinct, Instinct 2. Imagine it's something else. So, it's got, you know, it's got David Morrissey in it. It's got David Morrissey in it, yeah. Um, so, you know, who knows? But I can guarantee you that whatever it was that Lynn Ramsey would have done with it, I wouldn't have been using the word ordinary. And in the case of Django, it's fine. It's very ordinary. Colonial commoner Lachlan Sadler says... Jane Got a Gun is a solid little western, albeit rather disappointing, as Gavin O'Connor's follow-up to the superb Warrior. Portman is miscast but tries very hard. Joel Edgerton continues to prove himself one of the most unfairly talented men in Hollywood. His story structure is heavily... Unfairly talented. Unfairly talented. That's a lovely phrase. His story structure is heavily indebted to High Noon, as is the film's sense of almost melancholic inevitability. But Jane Got a Gun is distinguished by Mandy Walker's sumptuous cinematography and by Ewan McGregor hamming it up as the villain, complete with gloriously bushy eyebrows. Uh, I mentioned just a couple more thoughts on uh, Jungle Book because we had so many earlier. Yeah. Um, Mr Boyce, Oshin Boyce says, uh, I'm sure you'll get plenty of feedback on Jungle Book. Uh, I'd like to throw my two cents. I'm 25. I left the cinema underwhelmed. For one thing, the film seems to have been shot in the Valley of the Uncanny. I felt like I was watching... That's a, 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 just in case anyone doesn't understand, the Valley of the Uncanny is the, that awkward sense. Where if you have photorealist animation, Uncanny Valley is that thing when something is real enough to be real, but unreal enough that you feel uncomfortable about it. That's what Uncanny Valley is. And I felt I was like, I felt I was watching a video game at times. The green screening is obvious and compared to the likes of Rise, Dawn of Planet of the Apes, the CGI just doesn't stand up. But my main issue was the similarities to the original from 1967. Is this a new adaptation or a remake? The film can't seem well, to make kind of, up its it, mind. It's both, isn't it, according to um, uh, John Favreau? And ends up shoehorning in songs and winks to the original. It's a passable film, but there's nothing to justify it its existence and loses out to the 67 version on every count. Tom and Mo Kennedy. Um, after listening with uh, interest to your enthusiastic review of The Jungle Book last week, I decided to take my nearly seven-year-old daughter Mo to see it, despite the warnings it might be on the scary side. We both thoroughly enjoyed it, and in fact goes straight up there in my top few children's films of all time. And although Mo hasn't seen as many, she felt the same. She also wanted me to pass on that although it was quite scary at times and certainly adrenaline pumping, she felt quite able to comfort herself with the knowledge that what she was watching wasn't real, however convincing it was. She she also strongly disagreed with Simon's comment that the music wasn't necessary. She loved it and felt it added a welcome extra dimension to a link to the classic cartoon version. Yeah, and I, I felt the same way. And I thought that when you asked John Favreau that question about it, he's the, the, the he. Oh, I beg your pardon. He didn't say this to you, Simon. He said it to Steve Wright. He said, I'm sorry. Oh, 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 oh. oh. Anyway, but it was a good answer. That's all right. Carry he said, um, he said show, it would be like he said it would be like going to see the Rolling Stones and them not playing Brown Sugar. I'm so sorry. I've heard, I actually have actually no, heard you. Have, no, that's right. I listened because Steve does a great show. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Uh, Tom also says I love the show, Steve. Can I take this opportunity to establish acupuncturists annex? <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll find out. Go ahead. You might be there on your own. Uh, but we'll see how that works out. So, look, we've got three minutes left. Is there anything that you want to tell yeah, us? Yeah, very, very quickly. Let's do a friend request uh, directed by Simon Verhoeven. Um, you remember Unfriended last year, which I rather liked, which was a sort of cyber thriller. Um, took place this entirely... Paul Verhoeven. No. 
uh, took place entirely on uh, computer screens with a bunch of teens uh, FaceTiming or whatever, you, whatever it is that the young people call it. Um, and yet they are being stalked by a presence who appears to be the spectral apparition of a girl who has died. Now we have Friend Request, which is a very similar movie in which there is... Um, there is a death, there is a, a, a plot which plays out on social media and there is an inability to log off and there are viral videos that no one can do anything about. Here's a clip. So according to you, Ms. Woodson, this video just magically appeared on your timeline this morning. Do I have that right? Why would I do this? There must be some reason this girl burned that picture of you. Look, Laura, we know that you're a great student, but multiple students reported you harassing Marina. No. She was the one harassing me. She was obsessed with me. Laura, no one's saying it's your fault that Marina took her life. We're looking into everything. But in the meantime, Laura, if you can't delete that video, you're going to have to delete your profile. One of the things about uh, sort of the social media horror thing is that when it gets it right, it's all to do with the fear of not being able to log off. And I think this is something that Unfriended did better. I think Unfriended, which to some extent took its um, its format from Natalie Rigolondo's uh, open windows, uh, it did do a very good job of having this story playing out in apparently real time, you know, in a computer screen. And I thought that worked really well because the whole thing was about why, if, if the thing is stalking you through the computer screen, why don't you just turn the computer off? We get nods to that in Friend Request, which for its first half an hour, 40 minutes, actually looks like a pretty solid reworking of the ideas of Unfriended. Things become less rewarding when we move away from the computer screen and we start getting into a kind of the gothic trappings of a witchy backstory, which then just takes it more into the area of the quite, quite bang movies you know, which we have seen so many of. So it's 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 perfectly fine. And I think that if you're somebody who is interested in that kind of the way in which, you know, social media, which is the bogeyman du jour, it is the kind of it's the, the it's the demon that a teen audience would understand. I think this plays with those ideas quite well for a certain amount of time, and then it loses its nerve and then it starts to fall apart. The advantage of Unfriended was that it never lost its nerve. And I think this just reminded me how much of a superior movie Unfriended was, although this isn't bad. Movie of the week. What do you think? Well, I suspect it's going to be... Louder than bombs. OK, that's what I thought. I knew, I knew, I could just tell. Just on the little construction of the way you love a film can tell yeah. what's going to be movie of the week. What I think's really sweet, and there's not many things I think really sweet, mm. I, what I think's really sweet is the way that you do that, that you go, I think. Well, you know. I go, and then as you were doing, you started doing an impression of me. You know how you can, <laughs> how, when, particularly with members of your own family, so and, we, and, and in many ways, I feel that that's what we are. We are of, family. If one of your children or your other half, and I'm saying other half and partner in the sense of like a commitment to a relationship as opposed to uh, Oliver, our 14-year-old, who seemed to have uh, not quite that. But he had commitment. Yes, that's right. The question is just, did she... Well, I mean, I just think maybe he's kind of old for his years. I mean, for the, the fact that he... Too used... good for her. Well... Yeah, but the fact that he used yes, that they use the term partner. I mean, anyway, but the thing is, you know how you can spot if they, you know, instantly what they think about anything, just yes. body language, the yeah. way they walk, hold of the head, yeah. phrasing, all that kind yeah. of stuff. It's that. Linda does this thing that she goes, Mark, and I and I and it's like, what? Okay, but we, but everyone, that's going to that's going to be the moment when you know it's like, there's something that I'm doing that's really annoying. Well, if you do, if I say, so what do you think about this new movie that's out? And you go, 
Well, uh, you might as well stop there because we know that it's not a catastrophe, but it's just really disappointing. You know, so. What? Okay. What tone of voice or what keyword do your family use when they want to tell you to stop doing something, or they want to they want to criticise you, but they want to do it in a way that's kind of couched as if it's not a criticism, but it is really. Uh, oh, that's a very very tough question. But you know, you know, there must be key words or key sounds that you know. You know exactly what it means. What it means is you're about to be told off, but in a way that pretends that that's not what's happening. Well, I suppose you could say so it depends what you're being told off for. But you could it could be couched in a uh, in a positive. Way. Okay, go on. Give me a couching well, in a positive. Give me an example. Well, it depends what what have I done wrong? Okay, say you've done well. What I do is that you've done the washing up wrong. Okay, in that case, it would be. You're really rubbish at washing up. Okay, so there's no there's no attempt to, not really. Okay, why would you try and sugarcoat that? Can't you wash up properly? But I can wash up properly. I your just... mum, <laughs> your face, your mum's face. Really, what is what is what does <laughs> that, that even mean? mean? That means nothing. It's completely <laughs> inconsequential. What does it say? No, we If you're going to be told off in your house, what's what's okay? What's the trigger word? And I'm not allowed to go. Hmm. I'm not allowed to do that. And apparently, you know. So that's it, because as minute I do that, everyone's hackles are up. Everyone goes, okay, fine. That's him being, you know, him. Hmm. Can't do that. Uh, it sounds like you don't have any of these. It sounds like you just have an idyllic home life. No, 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 absolutely Which not. I do as well, but I just get told off. Yeah. I'll have to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a study this week. The thing is that the members of the, uh, of the family who listen yeah. to this part aren't living in the same house at the moment. Uh, one's abroad. Shall we say hello to them all? Yes. Every hello. Year. Hello to uh, Her. Ben in Peru. Hello, Ben. And Tasha in Bristol. Hello, Tash. Uh So they're not around at the moment to, to answer this. So they can probably send me an email or they might FaceTime me. Do you do that? Yeah. You do FaceTime? Yeah. So you do the thing of talking to your phone and it's somebody on it talking back to you with a face? What, FaceTime? As yeah, I've, I've I've never done it. Yeah, I've never done, I've never skyped. That would be the first. You actually look at that and go, your face, <laughs> and then if you're skyping your mum, that's your mum's <laughs> face. That's why I'm going to do that tonight, <laughs> just because you can. I, anyway, I, have, I have never done that. Well, you should. It's great fun. But is it or is it just the, one reason I don't is because I don't because the way that the that the world works, aren't you just broadcasting all this stuff to the nation? I mean, isn't it just like. No, I don't think so. It would just be you at the other end. No, but it's, uh, you know... And uh, GCHQ. Yeah, exactly. And the cloud. Exactly, and the cloud, which nobody understands how the cloud works. But that's the thing, you know, having grown, having, you know, been in Manchester in the 1980s, it's the most ridiculous thing. Manchester in the 1980s, and we all believed that we were all being monitored all the time. So we, we would literally do things like, and literally, I'm not making this up, we would go to phone boxes. Actually, we did that because we didn't have a phone. But we would go to phone boxes because we were convinced that all the time we were being followed by the forces of darkness. Now we just tell the forces of darkness while we are on Twitter. That's what Lord Snowden was warning us against. Edward Snowden? Yes. Him. He's the same as Lord Snowden, isn't he, the photographer? <laughs> Is it a different one? Are there more? Anyway, we're going to do TV Movie of the Week, but musically speaking, we didn't have time for Florence Foster Jenkins. Oh, no, we didn't. Yeah, fine. And uh, Meryl Streep, obviously, was talking to us earlier. But we had a little clip from Florence Foster Jenkins ready to go. Uh, so this is Biasi, which is based on Bach's Prelude Number no. Sixteen. You can hear uh, from this clip that she's not choosing easy songs to. So this isn't this isn't a clip from the film. This is the, the actual Flo, Flo, 
Florence Foster Jenkins. It's FFJ. Yeah, that just sounds like WTF or, you know, no, OMG. I didn't, I didn't do FFS, did I? I did FFJ. <laughs> very nearly, you very nearly I did. did. Anyway, take it away, FF. Take it away, follow Friday. She's not far off. I mean, it's terrible. Oh, but hang on, but there are there are worse than this. This is yeah. she, that, this is actually one of the ones in which she's. There's a very famous one in which she do the <laughs> a bit Mozart. And it, I think. Yeah, and it's it is a bit Mozart. It's a bit country and it's a bit rock and roll, but it's not. I know. Top of the note, dear. Thing is, which is what what we're trying to get get at with the interview with Meryl is she loved music. Yeah, she and, must. Part of her must have. So in, no, that was flat. in Marguerite, there is a there is a moment when when you first hear her sing the character Marguerite, who's based on Florence Foster Jenkins. You first hear. Shut up, Florence. Thanks. When you first hear her singing, and then afterwards, there are these three characters going back home in a car together, and they're all going, you know, does she know? And one of them says, no, she's a singer. Singers can't hear themselves. Another one says, no, they can. She just chooses not to. And actually, one of the things that the film does is discuss whether or not she can hear herself, and in fact it sort of leads up to a confrontation in which somebody records her and threatens to play the, the, her, the sound of her singing back to her. Does Florence Foster Jenkins, the film, do the same thing? Well, I, th- I think it's, it is laugh out loud funny. But are you laughing at her I think... or with her? Because in Marguerite, you're definitely laughing with her and you admire no, the I... fact... Mm, I think you're uncomfortable, but you are laughing at the circumstances surrounding the fact that she is missing every single note. Right. Uh, And it it goes for quite a long time before we actually hear her sing, and then as soon as we hear her sing, you go... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Marguerite is the same. You get a, a sort of a, a long introduction, which, which I, I didn't know what Marguerite was before. I just I watched it. Just you don't see out. the shark for a long time, but then eventually you do see the shark <laughs> okay. or the UFO or Florence singing. Okay. One of those. Did you want to introduce me to something? Is that yes. Right? So, well, we'll do it when we get to DVD of the week, which would be oh, okay. Which would be about about now. <laughs> Hey, do you yearn for blemish-free skin? Do you desire a flawless complexion? Do you hanker after that special glow? Then stop sitting around the house watching films. But until that happens, why not purchase a new one this coming Monday? But which one? What is your pick? And what will Dr. K recommend? Alan Clark says, Krampus for sure. Such a fantastically fun film. Even I thought it'd have to roll credits ten minutes earlier. Let's it sent John Quigley <laughs> says, decisions, decisions, I'll go for Krampus. Cue Mark doing his impression. Krampus. Because there's nothing quite like watching a Christmas film in the middle of April. <laughs> it's right. going to be pretty arctic this week. Stuart Yates, Mark will definitely pick the ninth configuration and he will batter your brain in with as many exorcist facts as he can possibly manage. So brace yourself, Mr Mayo. And finally, uh, Jade Kelsall says, Hitchcock Truffaut all day long. But what is our DVD of the week? 
Well, it is going to be uh, the ninth configuration on Blu-ray, actually. Um, this is ninth configuration finally coming to Blu-ray in the UK, and this is one of my favourite films of all time. It's a cult movie that is directed by, written by, and indeed co-starring William Peter Blatty, who is most famous for writing The Exorcist. Oh. The thing that everyone forgets is that Blatty started out as a comedy writer, and he wrote... Um, you ever seen the Pink Panther movie Shot in the Dark? Uh... You must have done it. I must have done, yes. Okay, fine. Well, it's very funny, and he, yes. and he, and he wrote that. And uh, when he started out, that was what he wanted to do. And then, and as a result of, of The Exorcist, he became sort of, you know, somebody who was known for writing horror. The story of Ninth Configuration is Stacey Keach is a psychiatrist who is sent to a remote asylum that's essentially like this kind of great gothic castle in which he has been sent there to figure out whether the various people there are actually ill or whether they're faking it. One of them is played by Jason Miller, who plays a character who is adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. During the course of the drama, there are discussions about the existence or non-existence of God and, the exi- and discussions about the morality of war and the necessity of going to the moon. It all sounds terribly portentous. It is, in fact, quite brilliant. It is immensely quotable. It is laugh-out-loud funny. It's strange and wonderful. It clearly... Uh, inspired or at least influenced Shutter Island. It itself draws inspirations from things like Sam Fuller's Shot Corridor. One of the reasons I wanted to bring it up was not only because I love it, I love it, I love it, and there are several different incarnations of it. Incidentally, I should say, I did some sort of work on it years and years ago, and I think, although I don't know because I haven't got the Blu-ray, that some of the things that I did are probably on that Blu-ray with a version of me from 20 years younger. I've had nothing to do with the making of this Blu-ray, so I haven't got any interest in this, but it is a, it's a wonderful film. Do you have less interest in this than no, no, the Witter app? Well, it's not possible to have less interest in anything. Than That's I because we have no... We have, well, we, no have, we have interest in it, but we're not we're, involved. We're interested, exactly. But yeah. I'm not in, we're not involved I in understand. any way. I thought you were. Well, I, I thought it was... There was a moment when I, I thought I, I might have might been, have but been, then I checked yeah. everything and I've never had anything yeah. to do with it ever. But it is, it is an official BBC app. No. Oh no, that's right. It's not an it's official. It's not. not. No, I mean, that's. I keep getting that wrong. And it's not it's an in joke or anything. No, it's just okay. A, it's a thing that's been created and it's nothing to do with us. But when Incredible. you you can look at and find where all the listeners are around the world, and hello to the dear listener. <laughs> if I can drag you back briefly, in North North configuration. There are various different forms of the film. Some of them are called Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which is the name of the original novel. Some of them are called The Ninth Configuration, and. The version, which is sort of the definitive version, starts with this wonderful piece of music. Have you heard Denny Brooks doing San Antone? Is that a song that means anything to you? No, it isn't. Okay, so it's a song that turned up in Rolling Thunder and then was placed into the ninth configuration in order to kind of set the scene. And I had seen it in various versions that didn't have this song in it. And then I saw it with this song and I was... I, and I love it, and I want to play this to you because this is one of my, you know I've been doing this cellular jukebox show. I'm not going to play it, but this I want you to listen to this song yes. because it's absolutely lovely. This is Denny Brooks. It originally turned up in Rolling Thunder, then it turns up in the Night Configuration. This is we can listen to a little bit of it now, and then we'll stick it on the. You're going to have to talk all over it though. Yeah, we can talk all over it. It's fine. You just have to get through one chorus. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Sometimes you recommend things, and they. Don't sound very good to me. No, I know you hate Jeremy and the Blue Balloon, but this is not that. Wait till he starts singing and you realise that it's not, okay? Okay. San Antonio, it's really good to see you. Sounds like Harry Chapin. Yeah, which is actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And a little bit Randy Van Warmer, which is less good. I've seen your rolling hills and It's a great name, though, isn't it, Randy Van Warmer? A bit Randy Edelman, in fact. So clear that I could almost make them mine. Not like Randy Travis. 
Here we go. I can almost I see the, the open I want you to get through our chorus. No, I like it. Wow. Yeah. So I've come up with something which you actually quite like. Yeah. So this sort of holds over the, this sort of very slow crawl in toward the castle. And yeah, I'd love you to see another configuration. You would love it. Chorus is coming up, okay? So here we go. Cue the chorus, how would you? A little bit of Willie Nelson in there, you know? Yeah. A little bit, you know, maybe I didn't love you. Very nice. I Thank like you. that. Good, good, good. We're going to stick it on the playlist if anybody wants to hear the rest of it. And uh, it's on the beginning of the Who's the singer again? Uh, Denny Brooks. Denny Brooks with San Antonio. San Antonio. Thank All you. Right. I'm so glad you like that because I honestly cannot remember the last time I played you a record that you liked. That's also true. It often happens that you play me something and I go, oh, that's really interesting. That's really nice. That's really fascinating. And then I play you something and you go, turn it off. It's like <laughs> having my ears scraped off with a cheese grater because I'm open-minded and you're not. That's true. Anyway, so here's some Victor Borger. Victor Borger came up because oh, yes. Meryl Streep mentioned Victor Borger, who is this Danish pianist comedian. He's a funny pianist, pianist. basically. Pianist, funny pianist. He's a pianist. He's a pianist. Pianist. Funny pianist. Pianist. That just sounds rude. So anyway, he's... Placed... Hang on, hang on, hang on. The word is pianist. Or pianist. No, the word is not pianist. The word is pianist. Potato, potato. Can no. we get beyond this, please? All right. You're, Vic... in, you're, you're in your pianist. Victor Borger plays the piano and makes people laugh. The only thing that he's really remembered for is this thing called phonetic punctuation, where basically he takes a piece of literature uh, and reads it out and he gives uh, different sound effects which he makes to each specific piece of uh, punctuation. Great. So a full stop, semicolon, colon, dash, they all have particular their own sound effects. Particular sound. Yeah. Okay. So the version I'm familiar with is a live concert where everyone is finding it completely hilarious. I think the version that we've got is like uh, an old '78. <laughs> I don't even know if it is Victor Borger. It says it's Victor Borger. So we'll play a little bit of. Not be. This is definitely not going to hit anyway. I don't know. Okay. This is not going to go down as well. I don't as think Danny so. Brooks and San Antonio. Uh, we're just playing it because Merrill likes it. Okay. So here's a bit of Victor Borger's phonetic punctuation. This story takes place in London, somewhere in England. Through the open window, there suddenly came light. Full stop. Beautiful Elinor sat alone, dreaming of but one thing. Full stop. And, and a comma. Oh, cold. Two years had passed since she met Sir Henry. She could still remember the unhappy evening when her father had thrown him out. So he's doing all this sound effects. Yes. Though, right? They had been sitting in the park, and Henry had said, <laughs> Darling, is this the first? Time you have loved. Hi, Dash. Yes. But it is so wonderful that I hope it will not be the last. I just ask, is there a version of this that's funny? Well, I don't know. This is outrageous. Anyway, so I think I think the problem the, is you need to hear it with an audience. Don't yes, you? yes, you need to hear that. It like the Jared Hoffman thing about you know the the bucket went up and I went down. You know, which is the, very funny. Which is very funny. We haven't ever played any of that, have we? We'll Jared Hoffman. Yes, we should. We I, need a my new show. My name is Gerard, after my father, and Hoffman. 
After Gerard. That sounds like David Frost. <laughs> Hello. Good we evening. should have our old record. We should have an old record collection. Can we have a wind up? Wind. Mark and Simon's wind <laughs> up gramophone <laughs> selection. Sunday nights. I've got a bunch of 78s. Have you? Yeah, I've got my a 78 dad, record player. My dad has got some 80 RPM records because the Edison Corporation. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, when they were doing the, you know, the whole getting electricity set up, and it was all to do with how, you know, what the oscillation or the diddly bong thing was, and how fast the frequency vibrated in an open space, whatever you call it. The Edison Corporation made some records that are 80, not 70. I mean, it makes no difference. I mean, when you when the record's moving that fast, two extra rotations a minute is not going to make an iota of difference but they are actually 80 RPM. And there's a 16 as well. We 16 is for speech only. We should stop right now. 16, 33, 45, 78. We're making this super long just for that gentleman who's having radiotherapy and he wants a podcast that lasts all week. Yes. Anyway. We are going to do that. We are the podcast this, that just keeps giving. We are, uh, and we're also done. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, a bit of civil war next week. Not the English civil war. <laughs> Oh, can we have the class doing English civil? So we have to just stop because we are just driveling on now. Play the levellers. Why did they do English civil war? No, but they were around in the English civil war. Oh, you mean the levellers? The levellers, not the levellers. The band. Yeah. Sorry, that's, that, that is actually on a par with me hearing Ennio Morricone and going, "That's definitely Supertramp, isn't it?" Anyway, it's been fun being a part of your uh, life. Thank you very much, Steve. For listening. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and do better next, next week. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.